Just a reminder, the posse is just is. Am I the first one to screw up today? No, I've been f***ing it up since the moment we got (laughs) (laughs) So much for NSFW. (laughs) Scott's a good bleeper. If there's anything going wrong, sorry. That was just a, hey, just in case, FYI note for us. Okay. He definitely just pulled a a Ron Burgundy. That was. (laughs) That totally was. Ron will read anything if it's on that teleprompter. (laughs) Doug's new call sign is Anchorman. (laughs) I'll take it. I'll take it. Welcome, everyone, to the 36th installment of the Triple P. As always, we're happy to be here and look forward to great discussions on scale modeling during this episode. In addition to the Triple P hosts, we're also joined in the head deputy hot seat by our close friend, JC Osborne. Welcome, JC. Hey, Tajan, guys. How you doing? Hey, JC. How's it going? Uh, it's going great. Thanks for having me. Now, with the holidays in full swing, uh, bench time for a lot of people seems to be kind of short. I know for me, I've been working a whole lot, so I haven't been able to build as much as I would like, but that's kind of trickling down as we go into the Christmas time and New Year's. Um, so I'm looking forward to getting a little bit of bench time in around after Christmas, but before I go to, to Florida. So I'll have a nice solid like three and a half days to actually like get some work done, uh, aside from this week where I don't have to work crazy dumb hours. How about uh, everyone else? What about you, Ivan? I've pretty much retired the hobby room until after the new year. I've done nothing. I've just been playing Halo. So until the new year, I'm doing nothing. How is it? How's Halo? It's so good. The only issue is two days in and I've completed it. So I need to play it again. Were you even alive when the first Halo came out? Were you born yet? Barely, barely. But I remember it. It was a classic. And I played the remaster and I still prefer the original. The original is really good. I was in a band at the time and we would play in my friend's garage. And then when we were done, we'd go play his little brother's Xbox because he had Halo. When you come visit Ivan, we'll do a LAN party in my garage. Nice. <laughs> we just, we, we really need some good Halo scale models. That's what we need. Seriously, the Warthog from Ravel sucks. It's terrible. I like it. I would like a nice uh, Warthog and uh, what was the. The scorpion tank, yeah, Banshee scorpion oh, tank. The scorpion tank would be silly. That thing was awesome. I like the scarab, I like the big covenant walking thing, and the ghosts, the little uh, little scooter things with the wings. Oh, like little hovercrafts. So so much cool stuff from the Halo world. <laughs> <laughs> Doug, what's been going on, on your bench? Anything good? Uh, actually, it's been a really good, productive little time for me. I got a cold last week. In order to stay away from my uh, kids' friends when they came over, I went and parked myself in that room for like six hours last Saturday. I mean, the bug's there. So Sunday, I spent a bunch of time in there. And Monday night, I was there. And pretty much every day, I've been I've been getting work done. I even, since I couldn't find the paint for two of my kits, I, I started a slammer. I'm working on a 
little Tamiya Achilles right now that I'll have done in the next couple of days. So yeah, I'm having a good time. John, what about you? Uh, you know, finally got some work done, was able to crack open a machining Krieger Mark 44, which probably was one of the funnest kits I've built in a long time. And, you know, it's, it's almost ready for primer. You know, I, I love the fact that you can't really do anything wrong. And the community has been great on Facebook too, for encouragement. So I'm hooked, uh, you know, got more on the way and I can't, I can't wait to build them. I see you also mess around with a Panzer one Brita. I think you actually got some pain on that, right? Oh, yes, I did until I saw the art of the Panzers and I said, well, you know, his looks pretty amazing and I'm just going to put mine on the shelf of doom. But no, I uh, I used their box set right out of, uh, you know, I didn't lighten their colors like he did. So I, I used their box set. I put the decals on. I was thinking about masking a lot of it, but I'm like, ah, last night I tried to put on the decals and most of them look good. The only thing is I felt that some of them, the the national insignia for the Spanish flag and the larger insignia for the other side of the hall, they're just really, really thick. So I'm hoping that once I get a top like satin flat coat on, they kind of blend better because right now I don't like the texture of them and they're, they just seem a little thick, but otherwise it's an awesome kit. Yeah, I, I started, uh, I think I got the lower hull and the tracks built and I don't like Lincoln Link tracks, but um. They went together really well because I bought the the T-Rex 3D printed tracks and I, I'm not one to, to talk bad about products, but uh, that was a waste of money. They don't go together very well. They break. I broke half dozen of them, putting like six of them together. They look extremely fragile. Yeah, they're they're beautiful. They look nice until you start to try to put them together and they break when you breathe on them and the pins don't stay in like advertised. So I feel kind of bad. Uh, I don't like wasting my hobby dollars, but I mean, I hate to say it, but I, I really do feel like I wasted my $30 or whatever I paid for them. Yeah, you know, looking back at the Brita and the decals, they look like they've snuggled down pretty good. The one insignia across the back goes over these like lifting hooks and I just cut the decal around them. I'm actually kind of happy how it looks, and I'm hoping with a top coat on they'll they'll blend pretty good, and then I'll get to uh, I'll get to weathering. I'll say I didn't I didn't gloss before decals, but I find that the ammo acrylic paint is much more durable than your standard Tamiya or even AKRC. So I I would gloss for those just to protect the paint. But luckily, you know, Mr. Mark Fit Strong had these snuggle down really nice without any adverse effects to the paint. I think with a top coat of semi gloss or or flat, I think we're in business. Scott, what about you? You been getting anything done? Um, not really. Um, I found a ghost seam on the muffler of one of my projects, and I addressed that. And then this weekend, I'll be doing some hairspray and some paint. I've been kind of stalled because you guys know when you do hairspray, you you don't have a lot of time to work with it. So I don't want to get into it and then not be able to get back to it for a week or two. A couple other things I want to talk about, though. Shout out to Pete Kokla. Uh, he and I did a little swap. I ended up with a Dragon Puma, similar to a couple that Ivan's acquired. And then got a buzz a couple days ago from Matt McDougal, Dukes. He was in town. We went downtown and had a burger, and I took him over to MRS Kit Links and picked up some kits and uh, took him back to the airport. So it was good to meet Matt in person. And last but not least, JC, I know you've been getting some stuff done, right? Yeah, I have. Um, right now, I've got three Cromwell kits. I cracked open the first I've got the paint done. Um, it's a it's the it's the SCC 15 with the blue black camo on it. I learned that don't try to brush paint that. <laughs> it looks so much better when you when you actually use an airbrush. And you know the custom Micron is my best friend when it comes to that stuff. So yeah, 
that's looking pretty good. I finally got paint to where I want it to be on the M40. Um, that's been a challenge all along. I'm working with some, uh, as you guys know, I'm, well, you may not know, I'm, I'm trying to get away from the lacquer paints because of my, it just get a, my, drives my nose crazy. That and, and super glue. So. so I went over to Mission Models paint, which is good paint. You just have to understand how to use it. It's very, very particular. No question about it. But what I love about it is, is what, it's what Mike Rinaldi talks about, erasability. You can actually wear that back without using any hairspray. It's incredible. Now, the thing you have to realize, though, is that that layer of paint that's you're erasing away is very fragile. So now you have to cover that with a, with a, you know, a, a clear coat or else you, it's not going to, it won't hold up the decals. You know, ask me how I found that out. But I finally got that, you know, and much like John, I like kind of that warm, earthy tone to the olive drab. And that's, that's kind of where I have it now. And I've got a, you know, a little bit of, not model, but a little bit of distressing here and there. Um, and I just put a clear coat on that today because unfortunately the, the decals I wanted to use on this from Star were thicker than Tamiya, for God's sakes. They really were not good. And I tried to try to create mass. I was able to get mass for the, the star and the name of the tank, Big Bruiser, but all the small stuff, forget it. No way. So I'm going to have to use decals, which means more clear coating and, and then I'm going to have to sand it back. But I think it'll be fine in the end. So that's that's where that is. I've also, uh, as, a, as an aside for a slammer bill, I've, I've got a I've got Tamiya's 148 T, T3485 almost done. It's in paint. And I've got the Tamiya M113 in primer. That's what that'll be. I'm kind of doing what I'm doing right now is I'm just lining stuff up for 2022 so I can hit the ground running. And of course, yesterday I got the Dustwork um, Stug, which is an incredible model. It really is. I mean, that kit is. You know, I, I know that there's some peculiarities that some of the experts are talking about, but I'll tell you, looking at it, it's pretty sweet. The well beads look great on it. The diamond plate looks fine, despite everybody's, you know, was freaking out about that. It looks fine. Uh, it has a metal barrel, which is great because you do not want to use the two-piece barrel that comes with it. I don't know why they even bother with a two-piece barrel, but whatever. But it's funny, Dustworks name is on the on the cover. But man, it's all tackum underneath. Everything is tackum underneath. The instruction book, everything else, the, the plastic. I think I think I think tackum probably molded it. But it's it's a quality kit, and there's a little bit of interior in it, but not a lot, which is kind of nice. I I don't want to do a full interior on something like that because I'm not a fan of just covering that stuff up. But they've got the radio sections, you know, built in, so you can see that kind of stuff if you wanted to. And then I'm probably going to I'm probably going to grab some Jeff Shuey, um, Shiu, Jeff Shiu, I can't pronounce his name, uh, figures for that. He, he does some incredible 120 millimeter work. So that'll be later next year. I'll, I'll probably start it, but it's not going to be finished until sometime way next year, middle of next year, maybe. Maybe it'll be ready for that. I don't know. You can't crank out a 116 build in two weeks. I mean, come on, no. man. No. <laughs> well, I could probably build it because I've got time. If I did, if, I, if that's all I did, I could probably get it built, but I definitely wouldn't get it painted and weathered. No way. It's like, it's like we've seen. It's like I can build stuff fast and then the brakes hit when you go to paint and weathering. It just, that takes like at least two thirds of the build, total build time, if not more. But uh, yeah, it's all fun. It's all good. The Plastic Posse podcast is sponsored by Tankcraft.
nothing can ruin your day or your Tankcraft cutting mat like spilled liquid cement. Tankcraft has the solution, the glue base. Milled from solid 6061 green anodized aluminum, this thing will keep your bench top looking smart and spill-free for years to come. I've got it and I love it. The combination of weight and a sticky rubber pad on the bottom make them extremely stable. They even come with an optional insert to accommodate most major brands of square and round bottled cement. Pick one up with one of their beautiful Pro Modeler mats and start your next build on a bench to be proud of. Remember, Tankcraft products come with a 30-day warranty and don't forget the Plastic Posse Podcast exclusive offer. Use the code POSSE15 at checkout for your 15% discount. Head on over to tankcraft.com. That's tankcraft.com. And order your very own Tankcraft glue base or cutting mat. It just looks better on the bench. Time to talk about all our great posse deputies out there. I just wanted to say a massive thank you for all the support we have received from all of you out there in the posse. So without further ado, episode 36 of the Triple P is sponsored by Rob Willis, John Vitkus, Derry Wilkinson, and Peter Fidlotsky. And our deputy marshals, the posse outriders, Rick, Eric, Brian, Bruce, Matt, Grant, Paul, David, Ethan, Jamie, Steve, and Rick. All of your support is hugely appreciated. So thank you all very much. These Posse members all help us to bring you this podcast. If you'd like to donate to the Posse, just go to our website, plasticpossepodcast.buzzsprout.com. And in the upper right-hand corner, there's a little heart icon. Just click on this, and then you can donate any amount you would like. You certainly don't have to donate, but we really do appreciate the help. covers our expenses and our costs and just helps us continue to bring the Posse to you. In other news, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Plastic Posse giveaway that we announced in our last episode. You can enter on our Plastic Posse group or by sending an email to plasticpossepodcast at gmail.com. It's really easy. All you have to do is send us a photo of your latest build or your bench. You can enter through 1231 of 21, so the last day of the year. And then we are going to announce the lucky winners in an episode in January. Great prizes. We've got some tank craft stuff to give away. We've got some amazing kits. It's just uh, one way that the posse just wants to say thank you to all the great listeners out there. I've got a specific prize that I'm donating to this that I'm going to need a picture of the kit you're going to build. I've got Master Club Metal Tracks 135th scale for the IS2, IS3, ISU-122, or ISU-152. It's good for all of those. So if you're going to be building that and you're interested in that as a prize, just send a picture of the kit. In the box, doesn't matter because that's that's up for grabs. We also last time heard from John that he's going to be donating a built John Benani original to a lucky winner as well. Yeah, I'll throw that in. I need to still choose which one it's going to be, but yeah, happy to donate uh, some of my work. And then also I'll, I'll pull some stuff from my stash. I know, Scott, you've certainly seen my aftermarket stash and I can certainly lose a few of them and not be hurting <laughs> at all. So um, I, 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 I really don't think, John, that you're allowed <laughs> to describe it as a stash. I think we need to find a different, larger adjective for it. <laughs> It should be a good time, and I, I look forward to the giveaway. And and yeah, like a small thank you to all of our friends and really the Posse family. So yeah, I just want to say that for the guys over this side of the pond, I'm also going to be adding a Tamiya P38 
and a Ryfield full interior Easy 8. So wow. there's Dang a nice selection son. there. I, it turns out I don't need five of each model. <laughs> what? <laughs> Come on, man. When do you start building Mac, you're going to need them for spares. <laughs> yeah. I've got a Bandai B-Wing I'm throwing into the kitty uh, to give away as a prize. Nice. I have not decided what I'm going to throw in yet. I have, at last count, at least 102 kits in the stash. So that doesn't include a lot of my Bandai stuff. So I will be picking something I haven't decided yet. So I got to go through that. I'm looking at my list of kits right now, and there's some good stuff on there. So, All right. Well, listeners, again, all you have to do is sometime between now and the end of the year, uh, send us an email to plasticpossypodcast at gmail.com that includes a picture of your bench and your latest project. And if you're interested in some of those Master Club tracks, a picture of the kit that you're planning on building. You can also post those uh, directly to the Plastic Posse group, not our main page, but the Plastic Posse group. You can join that if you're not a member and, and post the entries there. Stay tuned in January and we'll announce the winners. Just a reminder, the Posse is just one of several scale modeling podcasts out there. Just head over to modelpodcasts.com and you'll find links to many of them. I would I would like to talk about one podcast briefly. I don't think it's listed on the website yet. I've reached out to to Stuart to see if he can get it added. It's called Built Sideways. They are a gunpla focused podcast. Youngish guys, I know one of them, Brian. He goes by Bro Builder on Instagram. That's where I know, met him first. A really good builder. The I think there's three other hosts, all super good gunpla builders. I think I follow all of them on Instagram. They I think they've just released episode 10, so they're relatively new. And if you're into gunpla or just that community in general, it's pretty interesting. I, I like they have a different take than we do on the hobby because it's the same hobby really, but like as everyone knows, it's like fractured, you know, splintered off kind of to like their own thing. They, they do, I know at least Brian does normal, quote-unquote, builds as well, but he's primarily a, a gunplay builder. So, I mean, check it out. Hopefully, Stuart's added them to the, the website soon. Um, if not, you know, go check them out. It's pretty cool. That's all I have. I don't have anything else. John. Yeah, sorry. I was just following them. And I count, that's up to nine podcasts I'm following for scale modeling. Wow. But the hobby's dying. Wow. Oh, you beat me to it. You beat me to it. <laughs> hey, man, Hobby's dying, and he just ordered 1,500 stugs. It's really rough out there. He's yeah. so, a literal tractor trailer full of stugs. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Yeah. Anyway, so, you know, my turn. This is just an update on the Value Gear M3 M4 Sherman Lee group build for the IPMS Nationals. We're still going strong. We have up to 86 entries right now. And I will say, just within the last two weeks since our last episode dropped, there's been some great work posted. I'm going to list a lot of people because they really deserve it. You know, just today, we're recording on the 16th of December. Daniel Brooker's M4 up armored experimental thing is. It's, it's just super cool. It was it was gorgeous when it was naked, and now it has a coat of OD on it. And he has absolutely nailed that earthy OD with some you know subtle dark tones for I guess you could consider pre shading. Major shout out to him. He's doing fantastic work. Also got to thank uh, Jackson. He's been posting a little bit of uh, 3D CAD work that he's been doing for his M36. We got Hendrick working on a figure, and he's also primed his M4A1 that looks awesome. 
Doug Reed is still going strong on his M12, which I really like. It reminds me of Dan's build where it's got multimedia material and, you know, you got your white, your tan, your OD and your photo etch. And sometimes I like the model kept naked. You know, also big shout out to my neighbor, John Everett. He started the Sherman Mark III on the road. Uh, As we know, he's a pilot and I give major kudos to him for building in hotels. And and I'm sure what he's going to bring out is going to be a knockout. Also, the list goes on and on, but I have to give a shout out to Billy uh, BJ from Panzer Concepts. He's posted some track extenders for his E9 build and also the Sponson mounts that he's scratch printing. And again, a true a true masterclass scratch printer, scratch builder. And then I'll end with Jesse Naughton. His M4A3 mini diorama that he's building looks really great. He's got a bunch of figures. Looks like it's set in the Ardennes time frame. Really looking forward to that as well. So there is no shortage of great models there. I'm sure I've missed a few people. Keep posting. Incredibly inspirational. I hope to get some updates in this next week and keep going strong. I think we're going to have an awesome display at Nationals. Without a doubt, it's going to look awesome. And I know everyone on here will be bringing one. So it's, again, it's just going to be great. And there's still time to join. There's still minor nations, but I I think there's some flexibility too in subject matter. If you do want to join and and have a kit, just ping TJ. We can get you in the group and all we ask is follow the rules and have fun. And then lastly, I just want to give a quick reminder for all of the airplane modelers that listen to us. The Model Geeks A4 group build is going strong. Last I heard, they have over a hundred members in their Facebook group. And then the population of people in the group build is growing by the day. That's A4 Skyhawks, the scooter, any scale, any kit, any nation. So a lot of flexibility there. I have one fortunately donated to me by Scott. So I'm hoping to start that at some point. Anyone start their scooter yet? (laughs) No, still in the box and it's plastic wrapping. I'll be kicking mine off in January. I have not started mine either. I am going to take Darren up on his offer. I'll probably bring my uh, scooter down to his house and he'll crack open an armor build and we'll uh, teach each other how to <laughs> how to do it. So Yeah, I'm the, I'm the same way. I'm trying to get a couple of builds sorted that were ahead uh, of the scooter in the queue, but really looking forward to the to the build. I love the A4 and those Hasegawa kits are great. Yeah, I've got an Arma Hobby 172nd A4 that looks really nice. Arma does a nice job, boy, with the 172nd scale aircraft. Yeah, they have be- they do beautiful work. I've I've opened a couple of the boxes at the local shop of their uh, 72nd scale Wildcat and their Hurricane. Hurricane, you have to say it proper. Hurricane. <laughs> um, let me take a sip of my tea. No, they're they're beautiful <laughs> little kits. Really, really love. TJ, I just wanted to mention when you go down and see Darren. Steal that KV2 he just got from Tamiya. <laughs> oh, I will. He ain't going to miss it. He's got, he's tied up with that M18 Hellcat. Yeah. I, I just, I'm imagining it like he's, him showing me how to build a model, like an airplane model. It's going to be like that scene in Ghost where she's making the pottery. He's going to come behind me. He's like, no, TJ, you, you build it like you sand the seam like this. I'll be like, oh, okay. <laughs> Well, dude, I, I'm I'm thinking of uh, Chubbs and Happy Gilmore, where he walks up behind him. And he's like, "It's all in the hips. It's all in the hips." Like that's that's what I'm picturing. You at the bench, and you got that fuselage, and you're polishing that center fuselage seam. And he comes up, and oh, TJ, in his nice deep voice, and you're in some musty basement. It's all in the hips. We're, I guarantee it. We are keeping all that. You better, you better keep that. You better be in there. That's, that's comedy gold. <laughs>
called Darren Chubbs. That's his new nickname. <laughs> Darren, you know that alligator that took your hand? I got his head. <laughs> all right. I don't know how to follow that, but uh, all right. It's time for feedback. Before we jump in, uh, I just want to say thank you to everyone. It's been another year and we've gotten so much participation from listeners who we consider you our friends and we've gotten to meet a bunch of you and we look forward to meeting you uh, even more of you in the future. And we're always happy to talk and we're here to talk if you ever need to. The only thing that I wanted to, to read this week was from Robbie Noft. He sent this, this email following episode 35. He said, I just wanted to give you a huge shout out for the professionalism with your interview with Andrea Rodriguez. Women are a very underrepresented group in this hobby, dominated by men. You did not make comments like, women makes it in modeling channels or anything based on her gender. It was 100% focused on her skills, which is how things rightfully should be. She was treated as an equal, and Scott and JB spoke with the same respect as every other guest on the podcast. I, would expect, I wouldn't expect anything less. It was a great interview. I hope that other women hear this podcast and realize that they are more welcome, more than welcome to be a part of it. It's not about gender, religion, social status, sexual orientation. It's a hobby. It's a community that anyone can be in. I know my six-year-old daughter is super excited watching Andrea's channel and knowing that she can build models also. Andrea may not realize it, but that is a huge impact for my daughter. Anyways, very well done, gentlemen, and you are really doing an amazing job at bringing this community together. That was Robbie Noss. Thank you so much, Robbie. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. It was great having you on the podcast, and thanks so much for sharing that. I appreciate it. It's awesome that your daughter got to see her work. She she's a blast to talk to, but her her skills. She just started in the hobby in 2018, essentially, and she's amazing. So since this is the last episode of 2021, uh, we figured it'd be really fun to do like a end of year retrospective uh, about all our bills and just the hobby in general. I'm, I know for me personally, I'm super into that kind of lame stuff. I love like looking back previous year. I love New Year's. I got married on New Year's Eve. So I, I love this time of year. It's it's fantastic. So I kind of wanted to kick around a few questions to everyone about the hobby this year. Um, I know for some of us, it was a good year. Some of us, maybe not so much. So to kick it off, let's talk about how many models did you complete this year? So I'm going to start with you, JB. Oh, man. This year has been really rough for me in terms of production. I don't know the count off the top of my head because it's been a little wild lately, but I bet I didn't finish more than six. You know, I certainly started a lot, but I didn't finish that many, but it was a great year otherwise. So finish six, I have a lot in progress and I'm hoping that 2022, once I get settled down here, dare I say, I hope to match a TJ number at some point of, you know, 20 plus. I hope I can drink next year with the number of models I finish. That's the goal. Legally, I should say legally. But yeah, that's uh, that's my story. Not as much as I wanted. Uh, a lot of things going on in life, but otherwise, despite production being low, it's probably one of the best years I've ever had in the hobby uh, because of because of other things. So uh, of what you finished, what would you say your favorite was? It, it, it's not even just which one you think is the best. Which one did you like the most? It could be for like any reason. Yeah. You know, the one I like the most, I'm going to have to point to the miniature, the little Kettencrad from Tamiya. It was nothing but a pure joy to build. And it was one of those builds where everything went right from the construction to the paint 
to the finish. I mean, literally there were no hiccups and it was really, really fun to build. And then also it's incredibly exciting to be one of the first people to build a kit. I know that sounds kind of hokey, but if you get a review sample or you like one of the first people to buy it, as soon as it comes out, you crank that thing out, get it on the net and and see the feedback. Like it's, it's just super motivating and super fun. That's why I kind of just want to sell all my old kits and just build new stuff because there's constantly new great things coming out. And I got to point to the Kettenkrad as, as the one I'd choose there. So in that same vein, what was your proudest modeling achievement or modeling adjacent achievement? Something involved in the hobby that happened to you or you did could be anything finishing a kit. You know, what, what, what can you look back on this year and be like, damn, that was that was that was rad. Uh, honestly, it was nationals. I'm going to point to that. You know, having you, having Scott, having Doug there, meeting you guys for the first time in person, literally I knew within the first 10 seconds, I mean, I, I shouldn't even say first 10 seconds. I knew before you even showed up, we were going to have a great time. And I knew that through our conversations on the podcast, seeing you in person, going out, having a beer, having dinner, interacting with other modelers, it was awesome. And it was purely, it was pure joy. And I'm, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to attend the show, to have my friends there and, and just meet everyone. And again, I point to that the, is the single most great proud moment where we're sitting there at the table and people come up left and right and going, Hey, I've never been to a Nats before. I, you guys talked about it and I decided to make the drive down. And especially there was a younger gentleman and I forget his name. I feel terrible, but he, he, he was probably in his early twenties. He told his wife, Hey, I'm driving five hours to a model show in Vegas, never been to a show before and is just doing it. And I thought that was just so cool. And having, you know, some influence in that with you guys was, was awesome and meeting everyone else. So hands down, IPMS Nationals. I don't know about you, but I, I make resolutions for the hobby and just in general. Did you make any hobby re- resolutions last year? And if you did, did you achieve any of them? Well, that's a great question. I think my hobby resolution was to build more dioramas and figures. And I think I did one diorama. I did one diorama and one figure. So I guess I technically completed it, but I haven't, you know, I didn't max it. I didn't, I didn't pull a TJ and crush it. So I'm, I'm a little disappointed there. Do you have hobby resolutions for next year? Yeah. You know, I think for me, man, you know, my resolution is I, I really got to, you know, I look at my desk right now and it's a crap storm and I got to, my resolution is to be less congested. And I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'm not going to put a number on a resolution but I'm going to put a mindset on my resolution, trying to approach the hobby in a little bit more focused in a more concentrated effort and not have chaos everywhere I look because it really demotivates me. Even just coming in to do this podcast, I had to clean crap off the bench. I'm like, this sucks. So I'm hoping to be better at, uh, you know, just, just keeping things less conject- congested and just more efficient and, and really true, true to find joy in the hobby. And one step in that way is machining career. So you'll probably see a lot more of those from me in 2022. More fun Fetty, John. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Like all modeling events from now on, like if I go to a show, I'm bringing fun Fetty cupcakes to hand out to people. Faux show. And when Ivan visits, you best believe there's fun Fetty cake and cupcakes and cookies. We'll do it all when you arrive. So what actually is it? That's, that's the million dollar question. Oh, see, one of those said, no one knows what it is. You, it's just, spoiler it's, alert, it's yeah. white cake with sprinkles in it, yeah, but it's awesome. It <laughs> I don't know what it is about the addition of the sprinkles that makes it so much better, but it, it 100% does. 
Right. And you can't make it at home yourself. You need no. to buy the box mix. So Funfetti and Costco pizza. I can't wait. Oh, bring <laughs> your fat good pants. Time. <laughs> True American. So Doug, um, how many models did you complete this year? 15. I counted them because I knew you were going to ask the question. So Whoa. I counted them up. <laughs> Damn. Whoa. 15, but you have to understand that half of those were little 144 scale Star Wars kits. They're tiny, yeah. but I did. Still every counts, one of yeah. them got painted. Every one of them got weathered. Not necessarily to my highest standards, but I got them done. They're going on a Christmas tree, so they didn't need to be great. They 100% count. It's like the opposite of when Legolas downs the Oilophant at the Battle of Pelennor Fields. That still <laughs> yeah. counts as one. The little tiny thing this big that you finished still counts as one. I, I agree. I'm going to give TJ 50 bonus points for the awesome Lord of the Rings reference. <laughs> um, so uh, of what you finished, Doug, wh- what would you say your favorite one was? You know, considering how much I whined about that kit, it's the RFM T3485. I whined because it's armor and I just, I'm starting to get armor now, but for the longest time I couldn't convince myself how you go about doing things. Like from somebody that built a lot of aircraft, it just seemed counterintuitive to put some things on the tank and then paint it and then have to go and try to, I would, these are things that I do later. It would be like putting landing gear on your aircraft after you paint it rather than before, but it's the opposite with armor. I got it and and I, I finished it and I was pretty dang happy with it. So what was your proudest uh, modeling moment or modeling adjacent moment uh, or achievement this year? Let's talk Nats again. And it was it was the group build. We we had six entrants and we won the uh, best RFM category. I mean, our pictures, our picture of our our tanks are in uh, are in the new IPMS magazine right now. You know, that was that was pretty dang cool to be part of that. I, I, I don't know. That was just that was really special. And we went up on stage. I, I, I've i never done yeah. that before. That was yeah, cool. Going up on stage was pretty cool. So did you make any hobby resolutions last year? And if you did, did you meet any of them? I did. Uh, my, my two resolutions were finish the model room. And I had that done sometime February, March. So I finally got a good workspace. And then it was to, to complete an average of one model a month. And my average is over one model a month. So... So I'm pretty ha- pretty happy with that. That is commendable. And what are your hobby resolutions for 2022? Um, very similar to last year. I want to build at least complete at least one per month. But I I think my goal is going to be to set a little higher standard on my quality. Not that I I I mind what I did, but there were like the Star Wars kits, those little Star Wars kits. I I can build better than that. I can finish better than that. And so that's kind of my goal is to build build at least 12 and have them done to a higher quality than some of mine were this year. Yes, I like that. Scott, how many models did you finish this year? So believe it or not, six, uh, which is pretty amazing to me. Um, I did the uh, three Star Wars kits, a TIE Fighter, a Slave One, and a 72nd scale X-Wing. And then I did two tune tanks and the Rifield models T3485. So not great output, but more than I was kind of thinking. So a little bit surprised. So I probably already know the answer to this, but which one was your favorite? Can I guess? Is it the Slave One? Because it better be. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and the, the, there's two reasons why. Um, first of all, you guys kind of nudged me to do it, but it's a project that had been languishing for years. And so... 
being able to bring it across the finish line and take it down to Nats with you guys was great. The other thing was I finally did OPR. I finally just, you know, Mike's live streams really kind of opened my eyes to things that I hadn't connected with in his books. I've read them, but, you know, being able to actually see him do it on his YouTube streams allowed me to kind of do it. And so being able to actually do OPR and feel pretty good about the results was great. So yeah, that's why. And see, that that also enrages me because you were holding out on us with that thing because it's, it's freaking legit. And you're like, oh, it's okay. I mean, it's all right, I guess. Heard that from someone else. There's a high, there is a high standard on this podcast. So, dude, that thing is, <laughs> is it not, JB? I mean, it's really good. You were we definitely holding that person. on us. That thing is legit. I sent you mine and I'm like, I kind of want it back now because <laughs> it doesn't look as good in, in the cabinet next to yours. No, no, it's got a hallowed place in my collection. It's not going anywhere. And to think you weren't going to bring it to Nats. Oh, I don't oh know. yes. It's, it's okay. Sound like Eeyore over there. <laughs> Good Lord. Come on, man. So, Scott, what was your proudest modeling or modeling adjacent, adjacent achievement from this year? Um, I don't know about proudest, but I think my my best moment was, was Nats. And what I'm going to say is this, but actually getting there to Nats and realizing that Dave Knights and John Bonani had not oversold it, that it really was because I was just, so afraid after hearing, you know, months and months and months, oh, it's so great. It's going to be so great. And it was. And so that was great. I mean, all the things you guys have talked about, you know, meeting, meeting you guys and in person and meeting everybody down there, you know, hanging out with Steve from Value Gear, who is just an epically awesome dude. And, you know, hanging out with, you know, our buddy Ian and, you know, it, it was great. JC, man, we missed you. Um, but yeah, Nats. Well, I'll be there this year. Yeah. Nats was great. It was just incredible. So did you have hobby resolutions from last year and did you meet them? I did and I didn't. I, I you know, I don't even remember the number, but I said a numerical number. I didn't meet it. I'm sure it was more than six. Um, so I'll be adjusting that moving forward. And what are your hobby resolutions for 2022? So I'm going to do two things. I'm going to take the example of my good friend John Bonani here, and I'm going to I'm going to simplify my approach. I'm going to do more slammer builds. I'm going to work on my skill of finishing kits and focus on kind of the fun of the hobby and try not to overcomplicate it, which I'm really good at doing. I'm going to lim- limit my aftermarket. Just build and and try to have a good time. My other resolution is I'm going to paint a Warhammer figure. Which one? Do you know? Did you pick one? You know, I, I have eight or ten different Space Marines. My first rule of buying a figure to paint is it must be a full helmeted figure. So something with a helmet. That's a good place to start. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ivan, wake the hell up. Wake up. <laughs> I know you're sleeping. Over there. I caught you. You should just get those glasses that have eyes. I think I did pretty them. well because of the reflection from my screen. It just wipes them out. <laughs> I already know the answer. Oh, but yeah. how many models did you complete this year? Well, it was really annoying. I was it was getting towards the end of the year, so I was going to go through my my online folders and see. Oh, let's add them up. It turns out I've done two. I was <laughs> really annoyed about that because the amount of time I spend in here and the amount of modeling I actually do, it just turns out when I'm when I'm in this room, I just piss fart around and do nothing. Um, so I've only completed two models and I'm really annoyed about that. I'm actually, I spent three days whinging 
and complaining to everyone I actually met in person. Like, did you know I've only built two models? It's like, what does that mean? It's like, it doesn't matter. But yeah, two models, really not happy about that. What What about that little T-54? I feel like that, that counts. That 100% counts. counts. Okay, three. I'm, I'm not counting that. <laughs> but, All that counts. But, that counts. Um, Still I mean, counts. Funnily enough, it's like it's it's right here. That counts, dude. <laughs> I am, I'm not counting that. <laughs> no, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm quite livid with the completion rate this year of only two models. That is shocking. Three, two, three models. Two and a quarter. Okay, well, out of the three models that you completed, <laughs> which one was your favorite? Uh, I'd I'd have to say the ICM 1917 ambulance. The 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 vineyard did for that. That's it's, it's it's not exactly hard to choose out of two models because the other one was an F fourteen three, yeah. But that F fourteen <laughs> is silly. It, it's it even is. worse. Try to act like it's not, dude. If, I'm gonna fly over to England and punch you in the face and try to act like that's not amazing. <laughs> it, it's okay. Uh, the thing is, it's not mine. I don't even have it. That was that was a commission, so technically it's not even my model. So really, I've completed one still, for me. Still did it. <laughs> Yeah, the F-14 were nice, but for me, the, the 1917 ambulance vignette, the Un Moment de Repite, that is my favorite. I think out of everything I've done, that's my favorite. It's really good. Just it's like right. I told you on, on Facebook, dude, it's it's quality over quantity. It's, it's really right, good. I suppose. Don't, don't sell yourself short. Have you guys ever noticed Ivan's accent makes everything okay? I mean, he could literally <laughs> say the <laughs> sentence, I lit my house on fire. And burned it to the ground. But the way he would say it, it sounds like, oh, that's cool, dude. I mean, he's it's like, what did it, you piss farted around? I mean, if we said it, people would be like, what the hell? But you're like, oh, yeah, I did that. And you're like, oh, cool. That's real. That's really cool. <laughs> oh, it, it was a bad realization to realize that if I've only finished two, I'll just waste so much time in this room. It's just, it was really annoying. Is it, is it wasted though? Because are you enjoying yourself? Doesn't matter really, if you're a, for, for a lot achieving of the time, anything. For the for a lot of the time, I'm actually not enjoying myself. I'm in here because really? I feel I feel I have to be. Otherwise, what else am I doing? And that, I'll, I'll come I'll, for a later question. You've got. I'll come back to that. But in this, I, I just spend a lot of the time either staring at this computer screen, looking at modeling stuff, or buying modeling stuff rather than doing what I actually have. Buying is a separate hobby. I think. Yeah, it's, I think it, we can all admit yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, Collecting mo- models <laughs> is a separate hobby from building them. I'll, I'll die I, on I that aced hill. It. I aced it this last <laughs> month. Yeah. <laughs> Big account. What do you think about that? So, Ivan, what was your proudest modeling or modeling adjacent uh, moment or achievement from 2021? I want to say getting on the front cover of Military Illustrated Modeler, but it's not. My actually most proudest moment and my most favorite modeling moment of this year is joining this podcast and being able to talk to you lot and just having a great time and getting to know you all so well and meeting new guests every other week. And it's just, yeah, for me, this, it, not even just for the year, this will be like the highlight forever for me. Um, I don't think anything tops this. Well, we love having you, man. It's It's been a blast and uh, you're going to get more than three, not two, <laughs> three done next year. Oh, I, I have to. Yeah, and Ivan, for your cover, I know our listeners can't see it, but it's <laughs> it's out on Pocket Mags right now. You yeah. can get yep. Military Just Illustrated mon- Modeler, Moment of Respite. Uh, yeah, it's a moment of respite, yeah. They're having a, a chat, just acting like everything's fine for a, a moment. Yeah, nice. Good scene, looked, nice scene. He could say anything, it's going to sound cool. All right, so did you achieve your hobby resolutions from last year, if you had any? 
Uh, no, last year, because I remember I shared the memory of my last year's end of year post and I said, let's hope next year is a lot more productive. And it, it, it wasn't. I think last year I did about six or seven or eight. So absolutely did not achieve it whatsoever. Shame. So what are your resolutions for 2022? Now, though it might sound obvious that build more, it's not going to be that. It's going to be actually enjoy it more and care less because I do find something that stops me building is I care too much about what I'm doing or what others will think about what I'm doing. I had that issue recently. So if I can just try and think F it and it's my model, I'm just going to, just going to build it, plow on and do things the way I want to do them. I'd like to think that would result in more finished models, but you never know. Can I add one? Yes. I think you should set a resolution to do a live stream from a model competition overseas. That, yeah, that's good. I, I, yeah, I like it. I've got my gimbal. I'll bring the gimbal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so your turn, JC. How many models did you complete this year? You know, I just wrote them down. I was kind of surprised. I actually completed five plus finishing Aaron Cook's T-34. If we want to count that, that'd be six. TIE Fighter, unfortunately... Yeah found the floor after my cat knocked them off the shelf. So that's not seeing the light of day anymore. My favorite build was probably the T-3485 from RFM. I had probably the greatest compliment I've ever received on a model from Stevie Gibson on that. He'd say it was the best T-34 he's ever seen. And I was pretty humble, but I was like, hmm, okay. For me, this this year's kind of been a change, a switch in, in my focus too. When I retired you know, a few years back, I wanted to learn how to draw, learn how to paint, you know, learn color. And uh, that was my primary, not occupation, my primary focus for quite a while. And honestly, after watching the joy that you guys had at Nats, I was like, what the hell am I doing? You know, I, this is, I mean, I enjoyed painting. Um, you know, on canvas, but not like not like model building. And the, the camaraderie that you guys have in the community, I'm dying to go to Omaha. It's like, can that be next next week? <laughs> All right. Oh, I um, wish. <laughs> I wish it wasn't. Yeah, really. So yeah, so that's that change, that switch in my focus, I think, was really important. As far as um, things I look to do this year. The one thing I remember that I was focused on was construction. I was always like rushing through bills and, you know, I'd get to paint and I'd find, wait a minute, this isn't square. Oh, that doesn't do this. Oh, I forgot to put this piece on. So I've done a concerted effort of making sure that stuff is right. It's, it's, it's put on right. All the instructions are followed. If something is wonky, stop, take it apart, put it back, put it, make it right. And that's really helped. I, I, I feel like I have a I, I mean, that's something I'm always going to be concerned with, but it's something I think I've pretty much achieved this year over past years, past bills. As far as resolutions for next year, I don't like making resolutions necessarily, but some of the goals that I have are is um, fit. I want to finish more, definitely want to finish more. And I've got some stuff lined up right now that I'm building that will help me do that next year. I'm kind of building an assembly line kind of right now. So finishing is going to be important. I think I also agree with Scott and John in, in, make, in simplifying. I'm done with a lot of aftermarket and Grizz can have all of my resin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting any more. I'm limiting it to like, if I need to buy a metal barrel, fine, because I'm not going to deal with plastic and tracks. You know, if I can, if I can find a good metal track, great. But that's about it. I'm not going, although I say that, and I'm sitting here waiting for Dragon Hobby to deliver a full turret stowage for uh, a Hessian turret for the Cromwell. So I just broke my own rule. But that's it's 2021. That's for 2020. <laughs> 
And I think the other thing I achieved this year, and, and I got to really thank Tej and, J, and JB on this, my photography's improved. You know, I, I used to fight that and I'd get these shadows and I thought it was great. And then I saw you guys do this stuff. I'm like, wait a minute, this is not good. <laughs> so, And just listening and getting some feedback from you guys on how you photograph your, your bills has really helped me trem- tremendously. It's like night and day. I want to thank you guys for that because that makes me want to finish bills more because I want to get to the, the photo tape. And I guess the other thing for next year is I'm actually going to try to do a build for a magazine. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm starting to photograph stuff as I'm building it. It's kind of like the JB model. I'm going to photograph stuff as I'm building it. And if something really comes out well, I may submit those to, to a magazine and maybe a couple. I don't know. So that's, you know, that, and of course, looking forward to Nats, but that that's kind of where I am. I'm, I'm really enjoying myself and I'm putting in some nice hours because you're retired. I mean, it, it's I'm funny. I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so jealous. But Teach, you'd think that, you know, okay, he's retired. Man, he should be, he's probably spending eight hours a day. No, you can't. There's just too many other things that still get in the way that maybe you have to do stuff. You could if you wanted to. That's, well, that's what I'm jealous of. If you wanted to sit there and spend eight hours doing it, you could. Well, my wife retired in June, so that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but I am putting a lot. I'm putting more. I'm putting more time in than I have in the past for sure, and it's it's paying off. I really like what's what's happening. It's almost like you're going through a renaissance, JC, because you took a look earlier in the year at the kinds of kits you were building. And then I know you've taken a look at the kind of paints that you're using. And I think you're also evaluating the way that you finish your models and the way that you complete projects as well. So yeah, it seems like you're going through a bit of a, I guess, an evolution. Yeah. One of the things, it's funny you say this, Scott, because one of the things that I've I've gone to is um, also simplifying who I'm following and what I'm what I'm trying to do because I would watch Night Shift and God knows Martin is a fantastic model. I never take it away from him, but I can't do what he does. It just drives me nuts. It's like I've tried it and it's like it just doesn't work. But I'd be doing I'd be doing stuff that he does. I look at stuff that Wilder Adam Wilder would do. I look at stuff that Ronaldo. I get and you just get so wound up and confused. I finally said, okay, stop, just stop. Mike Ronaldo's doing these great live streams and his Patreon. And I'm just looking at how to do OPR properly, how to do pigments properly. And he's been a great advisor in there on how to use mission model paints. And that's the focus. I mean, I, I still enjoy watching Night Shift stuff because he's just amazing. And the same with Adam. And uh, the other person I'm also following, but again, just to watch, is Rick Lawler. Rick's doing some really nice work lately and uh, good guy to follow. But yeah, I'm getting off the, oh, let's, squ- the squirrel, you know, the squirrel? Oh, What's what's nature doing? I need to do it like that. Oh, what's he? No, stop, 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 stop. So yeah, simplifying my approach and looking to be more consistent in pain and weathering, building a consistent process that's repeatable. That's the goal. That's a good goal. That's great. I mean, it's it's, it's just it's never too late to to reevaluate how you do. I mean, literally anything, and that to me is is refreshing. Is I mean, you see in a lot of the modeling groups, these guys are like, oh, "I've been doing it this way for thirty five years. That's just the way I want to do it," and they don't even want to listen. To that like, you know, maybe you could do it a different way, and you might enjoy it more or whatever. And like anyone can do that. I mean, JC, you've been building longer than me, but like, you know, anyone can look at what they do and be like, "Okay, this works. Maybe this doesn't work. 
well, I wonder what else is out there. Like just mm-hmm. having an open mind into what is available or what other people are doing in the hobby and not in a, a competitive way, but just like, oh, this person does this. Maybe I should try that and see how that works for me. That's I mean, that's to me, that's what it's all about. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny you say that because if I ever got to a point where I thought, oh, this is the way it has to, this is the way that I have to build and I'm going to do it this way all the time, just shoot me, put me in a box and send me on my way because <laughs> this is this is a constantly evolving hobby in my opinion. And, you know, as even as good as, as Rinaldi and those guys and, you know, and, Ad, and Night Shift, it's still, they're still evolving. They're still evolving. I mean, you just... And anybody who says, oh, this I've been doing it this way for 25 years. Yeah, here's a medal. Thanks very much. Appreciate that. But I mean, I, I don't ever, if I ever get that way, you guys need to slap me. I'm curious. It's like, that is not going to, that is not going to work. That is not going to work. All right, TJ, your turn, man. How many uh, models uh, did you finish in 2021? Drum roll. So officially, it was 23. I kind of only count 21 because two of them are wargaming models, but I guess you, I guess you can throw them in there, whatever they've been on the table once. And now they're behind me in some styrofoam, like not even literally collecting dust, but I'd finished 21 models this year. 23. I'm sorry. 23. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. You sure you can't squeeze out one more. (laughs) I'm going to try. I I legit am going to try because I still got two weeks. So, TJ, which one or ones were your favorites and why? I know we kind of talked about this before. It's it's hard to pick because I like a lot of them for different reasons. I really like my George Washington bust, frankly, for the fact that I think it's really good. I think I think I could submit that in a figure painting contest, probably not win, but I think it, people would look at it and be like, well, this guy knows how to paint a figure. Um, I was really proud of how that turned out because I'd never done that before. It's super easy. I did like majority of it with an airbrush. So that just proves you anyone can do it. And I like really like my Mark 44 White Knight. I think that turned out really good. I was really on the fence about it like pretty much the whole time because it's gray and orange and red and blue, which shouldn't work together. Um, but it kind of did. And I, I really like it. I really like everything I did this year. So it's, it is really hard to, to pick. And my Sherman was really good too. I, I, I really like that. I would definitely agree with that. So what was your proudest modeling or modeling adjacent achievement or achievements? People coming up to us at Nats to thank us for doing a podcast was the best feeling I've probably ever had. It was awesome. The The fact that people went out of their way to tell us that means a lot to me. Like it kind of make it almost makes me kind of emotional to think about it that, you know, I, I'm just some dork that builds models in his basement. You know what I mean? And someone's thanking me for, for doing what I do, like the podcast, like that's to me, like I, I couldn't, I couldn't ask for anything else that that was awesome. And being in my first magazine was pretty sweet too. I'll, I'll never forget that. That was seeing that issue was like one, another one of the like brightest joys of my life. Cause I always wanted to do that and never thought I could. And like JB pushed me to do it and I did it and it made me really happy. And my wife was really proud of me. So that was cool too. What about being uh, branded? You're no longer, <laughs> you're no longer a, you know, a bachelor in the modeling world. Yeah, that, that was pretty cool. I don't think I've ever talked about it on the podcast now that you bring that up, but yes, I got branded by ammo this year. A lot of that goes to you, John, and you, Ivan. Uh, I know you both vouched for me, which was awesome. You guys didn't have to do that. And like, I'm forever grateful that you guys more or less suck your necks out for some friggin' dork that <laughs> just like paints models. Like, you, you, know. 
you're too good to not get that recognition. Right. Exactly. I, I disagree, but I appreciate, I appreciate it. And now that you're part of the group, you know, next year in 2022, we, uh, we need to bring somebody else on board too. Oh yeah. We'll, we will grow the, grow the team for sure. All right. Did you achieve your hobby resolutions from uh, 2021? You know, I'm going to go ahead and say I'm a giant dumbass because I wrote these questions and I distinctly remember making hobby resolutions last year. I could have gone back and listened to our episode and I didn't. So I don't remember what I said I was going to do, but I'm going to go ahead and assume, sure, I did it. (laughs) (laughs) Good job, man. (laughs) So then what what is your hobby resolution or resolutions for 2022? build better models. I mean, I, I like what I like what I do. Um, I like what I produce. I'm fairly happy with most of them, but I, I suffer from the comparative mind just like a lot of other people do. And I see people that are way better than me. And I, I it's weird. I, I, I bounce back and forth from being dejected and thinking that my models are trash to thinking, actually, you know what? Mine are pretty good. I'm almost as good as that, if not better. That's just part of my weird neuroses, I guess. But yeah, I just... I don't know. I want to be better. I just, that's what I strive to do. I just, and not f- to prove to anything to anyone. Like, like I, I'm, I'm that meme of the guy in the party. Like whenever, like everyone's dancing and he's in the corner. It's like, people don't know I'm a really good modeler. That that's me. That's the only reason why I want to do it. Just so I can sit there and be like, Hmm, I'm a pretty good modeler. Cause you know what, what out on the construction site, no one cares <laughs> that I'm a good modeler or not. They only care if I can put pipe in. So yeah, that, that's probably the closest one. And, yeah, I, I guess not even really a resolution. It's kind of just a, a goal. Um, and also organize this cluster F that's behind me. It's <laughs> it's embarrassing. And, and, and over here, you might have noticed, listeners can't see because they don't have the video. I had a screen right here and I kind of I thought I liked it. I kind of hated it because it made me feel boxed in. So I, I took that down. I moved my photo setup right here instead of behind me. So actually now I can just go right here instead of, getting up and walking around a wall. I'm going to get rid of all this behind me. I want to re- rebuild my paint racks and make them larger and just so I can store my stuff better. You can't see what's happening right here, but it's worse than what's happening right here. So, Yeah, that wall missing was the first thing I noticed when you joined. That and your pajama bottoms. <laughs> Look, my dinosaur Ivan? Christmas pajama pants are money. Those are called lounge pants in the States, yeah. Ivan. Thank you. Oh, no, no. Thank you. Oh, my God. Right. Sorry. These are flannel pajama <laughs> pants. Lounge pants. I, right. Right. I have called them lounge trousers over here. On my last podcast, The Scale Model Shed, I referred to them as lounge trousers, and I had the piss taken out of me for years. Thank you. Yes, lounge trousers. Thank you. So my lounge trousers are cool. They're green. <laughs> they have silhouettes of dinosaurs on them, and the dinosaurs are wearing little Santa hats. I can die happy. Um, I got them for Christmas. I want to say the year before last. These are year-round pants. Thank you very much. I will wear these no matter the season. My kids and wife both laugh at me because it'll be July, and I'll be sitting on the couch drinking coffee and wearing pajama Christmas pajama pants and don't really care. <laughs> They are comfy though. I love these things. I've spilled paint on them too. So I spilled some brown paint on one of one of the, I think it's a Triceratops. I can't remember. I'm trying to find it. Maybe it's a Stegosaurus and paint stains everything. And I was sitting on the couch a couple weeks ago. My wife's like, looks like that dinosaur has diarrhea. I'm like, thanks. Thanks, sweetie. I love you too. <laughs> All right. One last final question, TJ. How many new tattoos in 2022? Oh, I don't know. I got two, three, I think I got four last year. So uh, I don't know. 
I've got a bunch of plans for him, so we'll see. I don't, I don't know. Probably cover this whole right arm and maybe even part of this one, but I don't know. They're really expensive, so it's like, mm, buy model kits, buy tattoos. Uh, the constant struggle for me. So so I have a question for all of us. Do we need to make a resolution for the podcast? Ooh. Has anybody thought of that? No, that's a good question. I actually am glad you brought that up. I have a resolution. I think we should develop a dialogue, but I think we should make a resolution as a group of guys here that by the time we get to Nats in Omaha, we figure out how to do some good for the community. I don't know what that good's going to look like, but I want to put together some kind of initiative or do something for the community that makes uh, makes the modeling community a better place. Love it. Yeah into it for sure. That was a great idea. And have a kick-ass group build. Yes. Hey, maybe if we win the group build, maybe we should maybe we should make Doug get a tattoo. Ooh. <laughs> Talking about Doug Reed. Oh, oh man. <laughs> Uh-oh. Ain't gonna happen, guys. Sorry. I'd take that bet. <sighs> Can I backtrack a little bit to my, <laughs> go- my goals and resolutions? I should have mentioned this because I know I've talked about it before. 2022 is the year of Machine and Krieger. Oh, yeah. I'm going to build way more Machine and Krieger because oh, we were talking about before. I like to pretend like I'm an armor modeler. I tell people I'm an armor modeler. I'm a science fiction modeler. I mean, just that's what I am. I've won more awards with science fiction. I've gotten more compliments on my science fiction. I freaking love science fiction and I love Machine and Krieger. As John can attest, they are pure joy absolute joy that's just building them the ways you start painting them like jc and i were saying it's to me it's the closest thing you can get really to not the closest but one of the best sources of just artistic freedom and scale modeling because you're not constrained by some douchebag on the internet which you can ignore them all you want and i do but every once in a while they do get under my skin like that's not the right color who cares man like i don't care but no one's gonna tell you that with machine and krieger tom hutchins did a camel that was cat yellow with black legs you know, a camel's a, 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 bi, a bipedal thing it's got a dude that sits in the front he has a, a facebook profile called man versus kit and he's like oh the machine creator purists are probably going to hate this and brian was like no they don't it, you can do whatever you want man this thing rules i shared it to the cal yokoyama page everyone loved it that's just the way that community is it's if there is a machine creator purist out there i haven't met him yet and i hope i don't because everyone i've interacted with in that community they love artistic freedom, artistic liberties. You know, do what you want, do what makes you happy. That's what Cal Yokoyama did. He did what he wanted to do. And he, you know, celebrates that. Yeah. And just to echo the community aspect of Machining Krieger, I'll say I was really surprised when I went on a Machining Krieger's website in their forum. Brian tuned me into someone selling kits, which I relayed to you, TJ, and I'm pretty sure Aaron bought some as well. But, you know, the community could really go on eBay and milk milk as much as they could out of those kits. Um, but, you know, they, they sold them for what they bought them for. I bought it from two different people on there. You know, they could have doubled their price on eBay, but it was it was really cool that they opened up their secondhand kits to the to the community before going elsewhere. And I can't wait to get my Pat Crote and Cooster and I already got a few other things. And it's it's just a really cool community, like TJ said. And they're in, in, incredibly encouraging. I mean, I posted my first post on there and was really blown away by how many people liked it and then even commented. So it's it's been just a, it's just really cool. Really great people. Oh, and, and the guy that was selling the Lunigans, I mean, he, he sold it for what, he, what you bought them for, probably like in Japan, like, Right. The re- the, like wholesale price. Like, yeah. 
That's what I'm saying. Like that guy and the other guy that we just bought from. I you bought two. Yeah, you used the same guys as I did, and they they didn't have to sell them for that. They could have sold them for easily, you know, almost double their price. I bet what they sold us because I'm looking at prices on eBay and astounded, and they were like sixty, sixty five bucks, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't pass this up, and got them super fast and. Again, really nice people. I, I, to be honest, I've also talked to Lincoln Wright, you know, and he's been super great. I never really talked to him before. Sent him a picture of, you know, my MK44 and really cool and supportive and, you know, created a dialogue there. So again, a wonderful community, really, really wonderful. And the sci-fi book. Can we, we I don't think we've talked about that yet. Well, like I was telling you guys earlier, I think most of us have it. I reached out to Lincoln Wright personally and it and just to tell him that this book's amazing i mean it, it, it legit is is great production quality is second to none i mean it is that's the type of book it's not necessarily a coffee table book but i would feel i would put that book out for people to come in and be like do you want to see what i do this is what i do like this is the top of what i do this is people at like this is peak performance you know he i know he worked hard on that book i, I think you can i think it's pretty obvious he worked hard on that book and I, I just had to tell him that, like, dude, thank you. I mean, seriously, like, it, it goes back to what I was saying before we were recording. It's him and the contributors treated science fiction modeling with the same reverence that that other people treat armor and aircraft. And, and even to a degree, figure painting, because it's not a secret that science fiction is the redheaded stepchild of scale modeling. Unfortunately, it is. It shouldn't be because it's awesome, but it is. That's just the reality of the world. It's in the mainstream modeling community. It's not the most popular genre. You can see, look how science fiction compares to armor, cars, aircraft at an IPMS contest. It, sure, it's growing, but it's not the same. They're, they're not on equal footing. Um, obviously, you have Wonderfest and, and the other shows for that, that, sh- that shows that you know p- people really are into this. But as far as mainstream modeling goes, it's the least popular genre. And a lot of mainstream modelers treat it like it's a kid thing. And it's not. Like The guys that contribute to this book and, and Link himself, there's as much an artist as I think you can be when it comes to, to scale modeling. I'm not interested in having that debate of whether or not it's art or not. You can't look at that and tell me some of that's not art, if not all of it. Yeah, TJ, I don't I don't think it's up for debate. I've got a copy of it as well. I have other FAQ books. This is every bit as good for, as a book, if not better. But the level of creativity and passion in these models is, I mean, it just elevates the game, I think, as far as sci-fi publications. John, what, you know, what did you think of yours? Oh, I absolutely love it. You know, TJ mentioned if I had to show someone what the, you know, epitome of excellence is in the scale hobby, I would use this book. And I actually did. I I had a night shift at work yesterday. And one of the things I brought in, I brought in a Falke and the book itself. And, you know, someone stopped by and they're like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, you know, I build models. Like, oh, what's that? I'm like, just look at this book. And they're like, whoa. They're like, this is, this is like movie stuff. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, you got the works of Brian, Andy Moore, Jose Brito, uh, Lincoln Wright himself, a lot of other modelers that I didn't know. And I used those names in the book to go find their profile and follow them because the guy who built the, I believe he's Spanish, who built the Nut Rocker, I thought that was 135th when I saw pages shared online. And I'm reading it, I'm like, holy cow, this this is in 176. Not only the details great, but his finishing is just absolutely astounding. They talk about principles like modulation and and what other weathering techniques that, that Scott had mentioned. It's 
I would put it at the top, probably top five modeling books I own. And I'm comparing it with Tank Art. I'm comparing it with the Wilder books. It's up there, maybe even top three, because it's pure inspiration. You know, it's not only teaching you techniques, damn, is it inspiring? And, and it gives you those ideas, like TJ was explaining earlier about you can't do it wrong. Well, there's some ideas in there. You know, Jose Brito's kind of scratch built space. Uh, you know, diorama. You got Andy Moore's camel that has zinc chromate chipped away from it. You got Link's unbelievable looking, his truly uh, traditional style, what Co wanted in terms of finishes highlighted in that book. I mean, you can't find a better resource when it comes to sci-fi. And I'm ashamed to say I don't have many sci-fi books. I might have one. And, and this is blows many armor publications, aircraft publications out of the water, purely just from an imagination and you know, finishing. It's just, again, I'm going to go back downstairs. I'm going to read it tonight. I mean, every time I open the book, you catch another model. It's, it's, it's also a big showcase as well of, of what potential there is for subject matter. Okay. You guys have convinced me. Where do I get this? <laughs> JC, you should have been in on the initial order, brother. Special, you know, it goes without saying, you know, special thanks to Aaron Cook, friend of the podcast. He took the initiative to make a big order from AK Interactive in Spain. I, I would say outside of the contributors, we're probably the first group of people in the States to have it. Uh, certainly, I think the first customers. So huge thank you to Aaron. He got it not only like within three days from AK, but then he drop shipped them to us. Yeah. And, and I mean, holy cow, I think beyond. Yeah. Crazy. So major kudos to him. Certainly a book that I love and will be at the forefront of my modeling bench for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Home home run link. One thing I want to, and it's not a criticism. It's more an observation from, from my side. Again, it goes back to think it was JC and I were talking about before you got on uh, JB. It's, it's not. So will an advanced modeler learn anything from this book? Maybe, maybe not probably siding more on maybe not. From a from a technique perspective, from a technique perspective, like, like I was saying, look, I'm not a pro modeler. I don't do it for a living. I think I'm a fairly competent modeler. I'm familiar with most of, if not all of the the major techniques that are used now. Like I, I, I know generally all of them. I can do more or less all of them. Obviously not as good as some people, whatever. That that doesn't matter. That You can't learn that from a book anyways. You, all you can learn is the basic techniques. The refinement comes from practicing yourself. I won't really learn anything new that I don't already know from that book. However, that does not impact how much I appreciate the book, like at all. Like, I don't even care. I didn't buy that book to learn how to do something. Um, if I learned something in there that I didn't know, that's a, a plus on top of everything from the inspiration alone that I have from that book. Because like you were saying, John, it's insanely inspiring. And I've seen some of those bills before because I've followed Andy Moore's work for years since I first got into this. Like, I found him and it was like, ooh, I like this. I like this one. And has have been a fanboy of his forever. I've mentioned it before. He's one of the first people that I'm like, that's one. I want to do that. And I, I copied him just straight up because that's how you, to me, that's how you get better or learn, learn how to do things. So I've seen a lot of the builds that he does in there on the internet, but seeing it again, I don't care because now I, now I have it. I don't have to get on my computer. I, I have a giant picture of it. I can look at it. Close-ups of his amazing weathering and, and, and everyone else and Link's work in there too is phenomenal. And I've also known about Link's, Lincoln Wright for a number of years too, but seeing his work in that book is like, it's way better than the internet. It it just is. Yeah. You know, I consider that book an enabler. I mean, it is, 
it really enables you to think outside of traditional modeling, you know, constraints, if that makes any sense, where I'm looking at projects in there and I'm seeing, you know, like you said, techniques that aren't necessarily new, but applied to a subject matter in a way that it's like, whoa. And the end result for some of these things are, it's crazy good. And and like you said, TJ, it's something about, you know, we've seen it online, but having it in a book, having some context with these models, and then also having them all in one place. I mean, it is one of the single greatest resources for the best sci-fi work in the world, hands down. And it's an international community from people in, you know, the Asian community and, and in Japan, how they, how they build Machine and Krieger, how they paint it with their style. You have the Spanish interpretation with modulation and forced highlights. And then you have kind of, you know, Brian's approach as well, which is a more, I would say kind of, it reminds, it's Rinaldi-esque where it's taking a more, you know, realistic approach in some of his work. You know, Brian is is talented and uses many techniques, but his stuff is so subtle and gorgeous. It, it really shows in that book. And even his hover car is cool in that book. I mean, geez, oh man, the, the weathering he does on that is absolutely splendid. So I honestly can't think of anything negative. I hope there's a version two uh, in some way. You know, I don't know how they pull it off, but I think there's an opportunity to maybe expand into dioramas or, or something or go deeper into some of those subjects because- Damn, it's inspiring. And I'll also say while we're on it, you know, I enjoyed even the upfront section where it kind of talks about each genre of sci-fi, where it's they talk about Mac, they talk about Gundam, they go into Star Wars, they go into other some, they even go into movie stuff, which I thought was great. Like TJ, you shared that picture, I think, on the private chat that showed the components of the X-Wing and what kits they came from. Oh, the yeah, the X um Star Wars kit archae, you know, archaeology. Studio yeah. model archaeology, that's what they call it. That was so cool. I mean, I just loved reading that section alone and then seeing the tie bomber on the next side, ne- next page, and you see what kits they, you know, got from Tamiya's Panther or the 172nd Leopold from Hasegawa. Again, it was an immensely educational book as well. Ordered. Boom. <laughs> well, guys, before we move on, want to do like a quick interview chat with, uh, with JC. For those people that aren't familiar, Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into model making originally. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been building models since I was probably eight or nine, which is a long ass time ago. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'll be I'll be 70 next year. So it's a long time. And it's like everybody else's story. It's, you know, on and off. You know, you, you take you disappear during your 20s and 30s and then you finally come back to it and then you go away and do something else and you come back to it. You know, since I've retired, it's become more of a focus and it's become now it's one of the main things that I do. So when I was a kid, it was Luftwaffe aircraft because they had nice colors. <laughs> you don't know any better. I remember trying to do 109 modeling with a, a cotton ball, <laughs> you know. Yeah, not the not the greatest, but um, and you know, as time goes on, you just build different things. And in the last, probably, I was an aircraft model for quite a while, and then it was probably in the in the two thousands that I started to build more armor. I was active on the MIG forums back in the day, and there was some really great inspiration being handled done done there. I mean, Adam was over there, Mike Rinaldi was there, uh, Rick Lalo was there, Mark Rooster was there, Machine Krieger was there. Um, that's the first time I've ever seen a, a machine and cricket was on that forum. It was like a crab-like device, you know, a piece that he did was kind of interesting. So, you know, that's where I really started to, to get, you know, start to get into the armor side of modeling. From the background, you know, my dad was in an armored unit and I use it as my, my logo. So he's in the sixth armored division. And, you know, that, I think that's also had an impact on 
you know, what I want to do. In fact, you know, talk about a magnus, you know, magnum opus build. For me, it would probably, there's, there's probably about four or five, but the one that I've been thinking about for a long time, and I just got the kit that I need to do it with. A, a gentleman over in Colorado sold me an M7 Priest, early, early production. And my dad was a 212 field artillery. And he was a mechanic. And he, he, wound, up a, he wound up a staff sergeant. And so he, he was in the motor pool and he, and, he, and he kept these things running. I get a bronze star for doing that. To me, I'm looking to do a diorama with a dragon wagon and an M7. And my dad is you know, one of the figures leading the, the maintenance effort on putting that thing, getting it, probably having it thrown a track or something and getting it on a dragon wagon. So yeah, that's, that's, you know, his, his experience has definitely been an influential one. And, you know, lately, I mean, you know, they back about, I guess it was about 2016, 2017. That's when I, I, I got involved with SMCG, which has been very helpful for a long period of time in terms of directing some of the things that I was doing in a, in a proper direction. I'd have to say in the last couple of years, probably not as active there anymore for just a lot of reasons. And honestly, my biggest inspiration right now is you guys. <laughs> I'm serious. It's like both both in the group chat that we have and listening to the podcast, it's just really inspiring. It, it, it keeps me going quite, you know, quite a bit, quite a bit. So my, my ask for you guys for next year is keep it going. Keep getting better. It's amazing. It's an amazing add to the hobby. Now, I think back in the day when I was growing up, we had a hobby shop in downtown Providence, which meant I had to take two buses to get there. And there was one guy and that's where you would, that's where I learned some of the stuff. That's where I learned that you can't take polyscale acrylic paint and put it on a model without a primer coat because it kind of just slides right off, you know, but, but that's where you get your information from, you know, and back in those days, I mean, you had, you know, scale model was a black and white magazine for the most part. And then fine scale came out. And honestly, there really wasn't a whole lot of it. And IPMS was not active in my area back then. So, I mean, there really wasn't a whole lot going, you know, to go to. Now, yeah, it's too bad the hobby's dying. <laughs> with, <laughs> with all the podcasts, with all the product that's out there, with all of the YouTube videos, it's just, it's incredible. It's, it, you know, there's, it's, it's certainly the best time to be in, you know, be a modeler right now. You get, I don't even, I can't imagine how it gets any better than this. It's just, there's just so much choice. There's so many things coming down the pike, and especially in the armor world. I mean, God, I can't, I, you know, the, on, on, I think it was episode 12. I was on in the round table and you'd, you'd ask the question about what kit would you like? And I said, well, I'd like someone to, to produce a, a, a decent Cromwell. Well, you're within a year, actually within six months, Airfix comes out with a Cromwell. You know, it's not half bad. It's a pretty good kit. It's got a little many minor problems here and there, but fit is great, um, and it looks like a Cromwell. I can't even I can't even think of a kit or or, an, or a, a vehicle that's not being done to some degree. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there may be something some obtuse thing, but man, and not only one, you have choice. You know, you get choice. Like, well, I, you know, I don't like I don't like the Dragon one. I'll, I'll build the Tacom one, or I'll build the Mega one. I mean, it's just it's amazing. Just absolutely amazing time. You know, JC, one of the things I've always admired about you, uh, you know, following you on social media and talking to you is more than a lot of modelers I know, you've always been open to try new things, new techniques, new paints, new kits. It seems like you're always learning. I mean, like you have this passion for uh, learning new things as part of your hobby. Is that the primary driver for what you do with your models? That's the primary driver in my life. 
I've always believed, and one of my core beliefs is life should be a constant learning experience somehow, somewhere. And the day you stop learning is the day that you should be put in a box. Okay. For me, I have, I'll get, I'll get completely bored if I don't have something new to, to go to, something new to try. So learning for me is, is, is a core belief. It's, it's part of my, you know, it, it's really part of who I am. You know, like when I retired, I wanted to learn. I, I, I couldn't, oh, I shouldn't say I could. I never drew anything except maybe floor layouts when I was, when I, you know, in my entire career. And I said, you know what? I want to learn how to draw the human figure. I want to, I want to learn how to paint. I want to learn on color theory. And I went out and, and within a couple of years, I, I achieved that. You know, I would, I took, I mean, and my family was amazed. I mean, they're like, where did this come from? You know, looking at some of the drawings I did. And, and it, it's all part of just, you know, looking for things to learn, keeping an open mind about stuff. I just think for me that that's incredibly important. That's incredibly important. Where do you see your hobby going in 2022 and beyond? Definitely more more bills. I can see that coming. But I also um, I'm not as concerned about number as I am quality. So for me, I want to st- I want to produce more kits, but at a higher quality level and a more consistent quality level. I don't want to be I don't want to find myself in the middle of painting and not know where to go or what to do. Or where am I going to you know? I'm better at that now, but it's still that's still in, on my radar screen where I need to be. You know, it's funny. I was just making a comment today. I wanted to, on the group chat. 2022 might be my year of 168 bills. I mean, I, I realized that, you know, with the Stug coming in, um, I've got that. I've got the Trumpeter Panza 4H. I've got two Trumpeter T34s, a 76 and an 85. And I've got the Lux. And I've got an FT17. So I'm like, you know, maybe this is the year for you to take a look at that. And along with you guys is Machine and Krieger. I, I just, that's going to be, you know, I'll tell you, I'm... I got a little frustrated with the grosser hood because of the, you know, having to put seams together and stuff. But once you figure out, okay, this is how you do it. This is how you, again, you learn how to deal with seams and then you can cover it to give it, you know, like a cast look. But the whole freedom, like, you know, TJ was talking earlier, the freedom of being able to, you know, design, put your own design on these and, and produce it. That, that's fun. That to me is really fun. And again, that's something new. Right now, I think I've got, the Grosahun is going to be finished. That, that, that to me is not going to be the best machine and career that I'm going to build. I can tell you that right now. I've got an Ammonite. I've got a Falca. I've got a Cooster. And I've got a Camel. So out of those, I've got plenty of I've got plenty of kit in front of me to be able. And the nice thing about this, you don't have to go look for an you know, aftermarket. It's all there. You, know, you're not, you don't have to go buying something else for it. So and, I'll, and the other thing is the other thing that's driving me in 2022 is the kits that I'm going to I'm trying to finish for the group build. The M40 is well on its way. Not a problem there. The M32 and the and the flail tank, the the lower hull and some of the turrets are finished. But in terms of I'm trying to lay that out from a plan perspective. And right now I'm pretty much on plan from where I want it to be. The M32 is probably going to be the, if there's anything that's a bridge too far, that might be the bridge too far. That's a very complex build. Uh, and to do it right, you got to take your time on something like that. Again, I'm, I'm well into both of those kits. So, and then of course you have to throw in your slammer build just to do, you know, just to, for a palette cleanser. And I've got some 148 scale kits that are just the perfect, you know, solution for those. You can, you can 
put them together in pretty much a day, day and a half, and then paint them, get them going, and just, you know, you move right on. So that's kind of what I'm looking at for 2022. That, and as a shameless plug, I'm starting a, an AMPS chapter in my area. Oh, yeah. County, California, north or west of uh, L.A., um, there's a new, there's going to be an amps. There's a new sheriff in town. We're going to be putting an amps chapter out and it's on Facebook. You can look it up under Ventura County amps. Um, so if you're in the 805 area code, check it out. If you want to get together with other armor modelers, just hunt me down. Excellent. Well, one, one last question. You, you spent a lot of time the last few years, um, getting into art. You've talked about it a little bit earlier in this podcast, but how do you think learning how to draw and learning how to paint has affected your hobby? I think one of the one of the key things is learning color theory because you I can look at in fact that kind of helped TJ on on one of on one of his one of his uh, colors and de- desaturating that orange in the ammo night. It's just understanding what to do with with paint color to get the to get the you get the color you need, the color you want. You know, and there was a time before that where if I needed a particular color I look for the bottle that said olive drab. Okay, that's what I'm. That's all. I need to find something that tells me what that is. Now I'm a lot more comfortable in combining paints to get the look that I want and the color that I want. So that it's that's really played a, a large, large, a large role. Plus, just the general concept of design, which you know, I want to try to do some dioramas, as I mentioned before. And I think when you yeah, the whole, the whole, all your design concepts will really come into play when you're looking at building vignettes or dioramas. So I think, I think color theory and just general design principles have been extremely helpful. The other thing is that you know, I had, to, you know, I got to learn how to use a brush, and so I'll, I'll be doing some figure painting. I know that, so that that that'll come in handy there. So it's all nothing there is, you know, honestly, Scott. If if I had nothing to apply to the hobby. I'd be fine because I learned something new and I was, I was pretty good at it. So, you know, but no, a lot of it is transferable. So it, it's cool. Awesome. Well, we appreciate having you and it's awesome to have you in our Treadheads group as well. We have a lot of fun talking tanks all the time. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I want to mention one thing, JC, this is related to your area. I want to, I'm going to give a special shout out to uh, Stan Spooner. He sent us a bunch of t-shirts Thank you so much. And it's all around Sprufest, which is held at Brookhurst Hobbies. This year, it'll be on January 29th, 2022 from 9 to 4 local, uh, local time. And they are accepting entries till 1130 a.m. Looks like they have it all, a lot of great sponsors, a lot of great categories. JC, are you going to check out that show? Yeah. In fact, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I just saw that notice come up um, yesterday. I think it might have been SoCal Amps that had it. And so I actually posted it on the Ventura County Amps page so yeah that is something i'm, I'm going to try to get down to because it's only i mean i mean to twist my arm make me go to brookhurst i mean you know really so, I mean, <laughs> plus the other thing is 2022 is i'm dying to get the amps i mean not amps uh um nats nats is going to be i'm really looking forward to it if it's half as much fun as you guys had last year i'll be i'll be totally happy <laughs> it is rest up it's going to be great i i think this one's going to be better personally yeah, I mean the hotel sold out within hours, both of them. So if I mean, I know there was some, you know, people could register beforehand. Okay, I, that that stinks, but they still sold out wicked fast. And I think this, even if they weren't sold prior, they would have all sold out still in hours. So I, I, I know, think it's John. a great indication. And the hobby's dying, right? I know, I know. <laughs> Again, I don't, I don't know where these people are coming from. I know um, it's still it's silly. 
but yeah, it's going to be fun. And, and we certainly look forward to you going and we will have quite a posse there. I'll tell you, it's, it's kind of jazzed. <laughs> My wife's all excited about going now because <laughs> she found out that the heart of the quilting world is in Missouri, is in Missouri, Hamilton, Missouri, which is two hours from Omaha. So that's going to be on the trail going in, flying to Kansas City, drive up there and then drive up to Omaha. And then I'm going to spend about a week run, driving around Denver and Western Colorado. It's going to be fun. We're definitely having a party in Denver. Um, fingers crossed Sam Dwyer says he's coming. So with TJ oh, nice. and Ivan, we'll probably have a mini smoke show here where we're smoking some meats and have a, our own mini show at my house and then we'll make the, the trip over. I'm that excited. I've been Google mapping everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> you just show up and bring your trousers, your lounge trousers. <laughs> and and you're, you, we're going to ply you with food and uh, yeah, definitely Costco pizza. We'll definitely go get some desserts, funfetti cake. And, <laughs> dude, it's going to be off the chain. We're going to cap off this episode with a Triple P interview segment sponsored by Sean's Custom Model Tools, makers of the awesome Super Sanding Blocks and many other great modeling products. These blocks allow you to have controlled precision sanding that yields fantastic results. So today's interview is with the one and only, the legend, Sir Hilary Doyle. Welcome to another Plastic Posse podcast interview brought to you by Sean's Custom Model Tools. We always talk about the amazing super sanding blocks, but did you know that Sean also makes 3D printed sprue holders, tape dispensers, and many other great tools for your workbench? Check out Sean's awesome new website over at seanscustommodeltools.com. Today, TJ and I have an interview for you that we have been looking forward to for a very long time. Joining us from Ireland, we have researcher, author, and military vehicle enthusiast, Sir Hilary Doyle. Now, he has told me that we are supposed to just refer to him as Hilary, so welcome to the Plastic Posse, Hilary. Well, thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to speak with you. For those of you out there that might not be familiar with Hillary, he is a chartered engineer by profession, but during his working life managed a software department. As he trained as a draftsman, he built his AFE career on that experience. His first articles were published in 1964, and he worked with many other great names in our hobby, such as Pete Chamberlain, Walter Spielberger, and Tom Yentz. He continues to publish books at Panzer Tracks and Osprey based on primary sources and a quick search of his name on Amazon shows over 200 books that he is credited as author or co-author. He is a trustee at the Wheeled Foundation, where he contributes research to ensure that their collection of running vehicles is near to 100% accurate as possible. You can find him on Facebook as well as on YouTube, where he frequently collaborates with Nicholas Moran, the Chieftain, and Sophie Lin on armor-related subjects and videos. He has also been a frequent collaborator with armor museums such as Bovington, where he has contributed to the restoration of many well-known World War I and World War II vehicles, such as the iconic Tiger 131. I'm going to start out, Hillary. When did your passion for armored subjects really begin? Oh, I, I was in what you guys would call high school at the time, and I was interested in history, and uh, a couple of us developed our own wargaming uh, activities, and originally they were uh, centered around the Napoleonic period, but we decided we wanted to get a bit more movement into, uh, into the show, and uh, we moved over to armor so that we could have wargaming involving armor. 
And from that, uh, I mean, I had been a model maker, but it, before the days of plastic balsa aircraft and so forth. So for, to support our wargaming activities, we had to uh, make uh, models of armored vehicles. Now, at that time, what I discovered was that while there was many thousands of publications on aircraft, I could find almost nothing on armor. To support my belief, uh, there was an article published in what was known as the Flying Review, which was a very popular aircraft uh, magazine in England. And they announced at that stage that there was something in the order of 50,000 publications on aircraft. And I searched high and low and found about five on uh, tanks. Now, actually, there was probably maybe maybe there was 15, but I just didn't know where to find them. And there was no Internet in those days. So I started to um, try to use my skill as a draftsman or, well, even before I trained as a draftsman to make drawings from which we could make the models. Then Airfix came along with their plastic models which saved a lot of work, but still you were confined to, uh, I think it was a Panther, uh, Churchill and a Sherman, and that was your lot. So you had to make modifications to these things to make them valid. And really that's where it kind of all started. And I concentrated on the fact that I could, uh, I had a technical interest. And then uh, my first job was with the railroad here. And uh, I trained as a draftsman initially, then went on to be an engineer. And I used those skills. And then subsequently, when I changed gear in 67 and went over to computing, which was I was one of the first people to bring computers into uh, into Ireland. I wasn't doing my drawing or anything like that anymore. So it was a terrific hobby to be able to use my skills as a draftsman to, to make drawings. And that's that's where it all began. Does your interest in wargaming exist today? Do you do any wargaming? Are you interested in that? Well, if you become as specialized as I have become over the years, you have to throw a lot of sandbags over the side. (laughs) You just don't have time for that stuff. No, uh, wargaming disappeared fairly early on. And then once I, well, you know, once I was uh, starting to do articles and uh, get involved in publications and so forth, Definitely, there was no time for that because we in in the type of war gaming that we ran, it could take several days to run a battlefield. And then, I mean, the next thing kind of to go overboard, though it was many years later, was modeling because I used to love the modeling. And particularly when the 135th scale stuff came along, I, I liked the idea of scratch building stuff. Um, but I didn't have time eventually uh, because I was doing more and more and more investigation and searching for the information that's included in Panzer tracks and included in the books with Spielberger and so forth. Touching back on your interest in armor and modeling and all that, your research, is it really based in a love of machinery or a love of history or really kind of both? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I've always been interested in, in mechanical equipment and cars and motorbikes and stuff like that in, in my youth. Um, though eventually, as again, with regards to uh, trying to save time, you don't mess around with machinery directly anymore because you don't have time for it. 
Your drawings of armored vehicles, especially German World War II subjects, have become a real staple of research for both armor enthusiasts and modelers. Do you consider yourself more of a technical researcher or more of a historian or maybe, again, a little bit of both? I would say, I mean, my my focus would be looking for the technical side of development and the, the the history of the of the production of these vehicles and less on the his, pure historical uh, side now that's not to say that you ignore it completely but it's not my primary concern i would have vast amounts of information on the history side of things but it's a sideshow to the the technical work i sense that maybe that's part of what led to your partnerships with spielberger and also with jens Yes, well, I mean, the Spielberger connection is uh, is kind of interesting because I did drawings and things with uh, a guy who was well-known in this part of the world called Chris Ellis. He was the editor of the Airfix magazine back in the mid-60s. And Chris used to modify Airfix vehicles to make different variants. So I did, uh, I cooperated with him for quite a long time. And then we decided we would establish a uh, activity called Bologna Publications. And we would actually publish my drawings with a little bit of history, some uh, photograph or two uh, for the for the scale modeler. And that was at the um, at the scale that Airfix used to work at, which was 172nd, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, or 176th, maybe. Oh, yeah, 176. That's right. These these were the the original Bologna prints. Well, this one is from 1966. I, I was doing the drawings in, in those, and um, I did, actually, interestingly enough, it's, it's in this particular one, I did a drawing of a Jagdpanther. And for that, I made it what at the time seemed like a marathon journey across to England, drove down through England in my first car to arrive at the Tank Museum, where I measured the Jagdpanther in considerable detail and i drew it exactly as i had found it the only problem was in my uh those days lack of knowledge about the general subject i hadn't realized that the young panther in bovington that the front torsion bars have collapsed so it sits down at the front so i drew, but i drew it like that i thought it was a bit strange that it hadn't got a horizontal uh, layout but i drew it like that and uh, shortly after the Bologna print with that involved in it came out. I got this letter in the post from the uh, technical director of Volkswagen in the west coast of the States, one Walter J. Spielberger, <laughs> to say, by the way, I served in these things in 45 and they don't sit down at the front. It must have a broken torsion bar. So that was a kind of a, oh my God moment. And uh, I had to redraw the, well, I did uh, want to redraw the thing properly, uh, horizontally, uh, and we published an update and so forth of the thing. But really out of that, this was just fantastic. Here I was talking to somebody who was really a serious uh, player in the subject and had served in, in these vehicles during the war. He was a technical engineer himself and, uh, you know, had been a, an apprentice even before he was actually conscripted into the army. Well, he was conscripted in already half trained, let's put it that way. So that's where my contact with Spielberger came from. And, you know, we just had a, a fantastic relationship. He was godfather to one of my 
girls. We we stayed uh, friends until sadly he died in the early 2000s. Yeah, I remember that day. That was very, very sad. I think 2005 when, when Walter passed away. Yeah, around, around about that, yes. But the, the even sadder thing was that for a very considerable period of time, he was suffering badly from Parkinson's disease. So, uh, you know, he had limited capacity towards the latter couple of years to actually put these books together. So you'll notice with the Motorbook Verlag series, the Militaire uh, series that uh, they do, which is all the Spielberger books, that towards the latter end of them, uh, you'll see more and more of my name and Tom Yentz, uh, where we, in effect, helped out to make sure they kept coming out. Whose research, like when I'm sure that you had some motivation over and above your your wargaming that inspired you to become a researcher. So whose early works inspired you? Well, I mean, the the very first book on armor that I that I remember was Panzer Leader, which was Heinz Guderian's book, because there you began to get some insight into, and, and of course it was in the English language, which was helpful. I mean, I wouldn't have had any German at that stage, but it was giving you an insight into some of the aspects of development of uh, armoured vehicles in Germany. But then and there was another series that I tracked down, which was the British official history uh, of the Middle East and Mediterranean. And quite remarkably for the time, at the back of these books, they, well, they had all the usual stuff about the, you know, the such and such guards tried to block the Italians coming in here. And then uh, Rommel came in with this and that. So all of that stuff was the main body. But at the rear of the books, there was actually tables of the equipment with, you know, at least for the first time I'd ever seen it, sort of length, breadth and uh, height of, of these vehicles, a listing of the guns and so forth. And that's the first time I ever saw them. Now, this was for both Allied and for German. And I'm, in my in my earlier days in the, in the 60s, I was also doing British and American vehicles and so forth. But over time, and especially with the connection with Spielberger, he basically said, come on, I want you to do all the stuff that I'm interested in. And he had such fantastic resources uh, for the time that it was very attractive. And in the Bologna Prince uh, activity, I made contact with a number of different guys who were specializing in individual areas. There was a famous researcher and draftsman, D.P. Dyer, Phil Dyer. And Phil did all the drawings for Dick Honeycutt's series of books on the American vehicles. Uh, so everything that I had on American vehicles, what little I had collected at that stage, I transferred it all over to Phil. And he got stuck into did hundreds and hundreds of drawings for the various things. He did them for Bologna. And then um, he did them, continued on doing them for Honeycutt, as I did for Spielberger. Then there was a, a guy called Arthur North who was interested in British vehicles. So everything I had on British vehicles went to him and gradually I became more and more of an expert on the German vehicles. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, through Spielberger, at first for the first, I guess, yeah, it must have been close on 10 years. He was still living in the West Coast of the States. But then he came back to Europe and he uh, was the public relations manager for Cross Mafai. And Cross Mafai is the constructor for the Leopard tanks. So in that capacity, he had tremendous uh, contacts. I mean, I, I had the honor of meeting 
guys from the Waffenamt. Um, there was a, a guy called Oberst Icken, who was uh, the officer that was in charge of taking over the Czech tanks in 1939. And then he was, Spielberger was in contact with Colonel Esser, who was head of Kummersdorf, the test establishment. So there was a lot of interesting stuff going on there. And then, of course, the computer company that I worked for, uh, not originally I worked for an Italian company called Olivetti, who did what were the first desktop computers, which was really no more by today's standards than a programmable calculator. But, well, 11 of them were used to calculate the Apollo 13 missions. So they were kind of famous in their day. But then I moved into, I moved over and became a manager for a company that we set up here in Ireland, which was a branch of the German Nixdorf computer. And that meant uh, a serious benefit for me because I had to go to lots of management meetings over in Germany. So <laughs> I got to Germany more frequently than I might have done if I was uh, doing something different. You know, then I, w I, I started going to the uh, Bundesarchiv, first into the um, Bundesarchiv in Koblenz, which is where all the photographs are stored, because images were what I was after in those days. It didn't take me very long to discover that there was another Bundesarchiv. Well, there was actually two more that were of interest. One was in Freiburg, down in the south of Germany, uh, which had all the military archives, all the historical documents and so forth. Um, there's also a Bundesarchiv in Berlin nowadays, where there is all the the documentation from the in, from the ministries. So Speer's uh, ministry documents are all up there. So if you want to study production history and so forth, it's spread over all these uh, different places. But you know, to 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 be a manager in the German company, I had to make an effort and learn some German, and that helped with uh, researching the documents in. Freiburg. But I was in um, Koblenz one day and I was at one side of a double desk and I was reefing through photographs. And what I was looking for, I had by that stage, it, this was in the early 70s, I realized that this bullshit of early, late and mid production was no good. You had to be a little bit more precise than that. And the only way to be precise was to find the chassis numbers. In those days, I mean, the re other than a few uh, vehicles in, in museums like Bobbington and so forth, there really wasn't much you could go to. Well, okay, Aberdeen was there, but that seemed like a far, far away place. And I was looking at the photographs and I was finding that some of the units were painting the, the chassis number, Fagerstelnummer on the outside of the vehicle. So I was noting these down and noting some of the features. And there was a guy on the far side of the uh, double desk, lo and behold, was doing exactly the same thing. And speaking with that Indiana accent, that was Tom Jens. That's how I met Tom. And Tom was working towards writing an in-depth history of the war in North Africa, which he, which he did. There's a couple of volumes of his books uh, just that he produced, I did. I just did the maps for them and so forth. But uh, they were on the actual, based on original uh, information, experience reports from the British, from the Canadians, from the uh, Italians, from the Germans, uh, and got rid of a lot of the kind of rather weak histories that were kicking around before. That's where I met Tom. And then we got talking. He said, well, I live beside the... Uh, National Archives, 
down the road from you. <laughs> he he was uh, able to uh, visit the archives and do research there, which of course was a bit more complex for guys like myself because. By the time I got to Washington and, you know, you'd spend three days in the archives, but you'd lose one and a half to two days just going through the bureaucracy of getting in and all the rest of it. Whereas Tom was kind of a permanent resident there, so he could just wander down in the evenings. And you you have this wonderful system in the States that you actually keep these places open at sensible times of the evening. Whereas in Europe, they open from 10 in the morning till four in the afternoon, which is a bit restrictive. So Tom was doing research, I was doing research, Walter, of course, was doing research, and we were all pooling it all together to to build the sort of data bank that we we eventually had. Eventually, after Walter really could do no more in the motorbook series, Tom and myself decided to, to start again. And we had done, back in the mid-70s, we did the Encyclopedia of German Tanks, it was called. And... That had been great fun to do, but, you know, it was based in those days. It was based on what we then by now know as secondary information. It was allied information. You know, there was great reports on Panzer threes or Jagdpanzers or whatever it was coming from the allies. But these are kind of whatever level the the officer that examined these had. And a lot of them were rubbish, really, when you wanted to really understand the vehicle. That's where that's where we we got to with that and then we decided we would we would publish a replacement for that which would be panzer tracks and it would have all the up-to-date information coming from the the primary sources with drawings and all the rest of it and i think originally we thought well maybe 10 or 12 for those panzer tracks would be enough but at last count i think it's 57 of them now (laughs) there could be more uh in the future man what an amazing story from meeting meeting Walter and then how you met Tom and how that all that all ties together. It's like you were fated to be an, an armor researcher. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm curious because, you know, you're describing the process of what research was like, you know, back then. Obviously, we have the internet today and a, a lot of access to information that we didn't. But how did the end of the Cold War change or enhance your ability to research and gather information? When when that happened, we certainly were of the opinion that this will be great, that there'll be all sorts of archives, especially in East Germany and so forth. But it, it actually took maybe as much as 10 years before there was any real ex- access to those places. Funnily enough, the Czechs were about the, were the quickest off the mark. They were, uh, you know, they had they had good archives and they they opened it certainly to guys like uh, ourselves they also had had a museum that they had uh, in Lashani they had a big collection of vehicles which we were able to visit and so forth and then especially in in Czech Republic um there was uh, uh, Franchev was the uh, main researcher there and he was just fantastic he was another kindred soul in terms of the detail he was going into so uh, you know we, we were all swapping information um but it, it wasn't it wasn't immediate it took time i suppose for the guys that were living there to know learn where the stuff was and then 
to where to share it and so forth. That's very interesting. And so, I mean, that probably relates to the internet as well, like, you know, having forums to share that information versus I'm assuming a lot of this information was shared either in person or through the written collaboration. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly uh, really up till, I, I certainly was one of the early users of the internet because of my position in, in the computer firm. My email address is a very primitive thing, which was about the biggest that you could have in those days, but it's still have it. The, the majority of the research was done by letter and you had to formulate your questions. You maybe had three or four pages of a letter, you'd send it off and then some weeks later, the guy on the other end would respond with his information. So it was a very slow uh, process. And then another thing that actually was very, now when I look back at it, it was very limiting, was photography. Decent cameras certainly were few and far between uh, very expensive things. And the, the sheer drudgery of having to take a hundred films with you when you went on a research trip, but a hundred film films, if you were lucky, uh, would only give you 36 shots per film. And then you had bags of this stuff that you had to carry around and try and make sure. And inevitably, you ran out of, out of film. I mean, I was in 76, before the wall came down, I was in Budapest and I was doing research there and I ran out of film. There was a special effort made by the folks that I was working with to bring me to a store where I could buy four films. And there were pretty awful quality East German films. And that was it. You know, you were really screwed. And then you had to bring this stuff back and it cost a fortune to get it processed. So you did not take photographs unnecessarily. That would, that's a limiting factor. Nowadays, you know, everybody is banging away, even with their phone. And you can just take unlimited numbers of pictures. So, I mean, one of the areas I was talking about was, you know, you need to know the chassis numbers to know what period the vehicle was produced. Much to the surprise of some of the guys that I contact nowadays, when they say, could you send me a picture of that? Uh, chassis number. No, sir, I didn't waste a film on something that I could write down on a piece of paper. Now, of course, it's much better to have a photograph of a data plate or whatever it might be. But in those days, you did not uh, avail of uh, wasting a film frame on, on one of these things. And, uh, you know, the cameras weren't that good either. So your books and research have had a major impact on scale modeling. And, and my first question is something you've already touched on uh, when we first started talking, but maybe we can circle back on it, is your your history as a model maker. And you mentioned that you used to make models. Can you maybe elaborate on that just a little bit more? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously in, in the wargaming days, we made little tiny models to, for, the, for that business and then gradually got more and more interested. And then when Airfix came out with their plastic models, they produced a Panther. So we had to uh, do how to how to convert that panther into a young panther. Well, fortunately, I've got none of those left to show anybody what they were like. <laughs> they were pretty awful, I guess. But, you know, you just couldn't get the information and you couldn't, there was no supply of parts for modelers or anything like that. And then along came um, the guys in Japan. What were the first fellows that came out with the 135th scale? Um, Tamiya? Yeah, Tamiya came along. And that was obviously a, a leap forward because it was a much bigger, much bigger model. You can put much more detail into it. And I continued on building uh, models until 
the late late 80s actually i used to do it from time to time uh, for relaxation and the very last model that i made was uh, a guy i knew in france had produced a resin model of a lorraine schlepper uh, a lorraine i should say a lorraine carrier the french Binde, and I took the uh, resin model of that Lorraine and scratch built the um, body and the gun and everything to make it into a Lorraine with a 15 centimeter howitzer on it. Interesting. That's the very last model that I made. After that, I was just so intensely involved in research, I just couldn't spare the time any longer. But in a way, drawing is is modeling on, well, on 2D, I guess. But uh, nowadays, of course, I work in AutoCAD. So along those uh, that same line, of all the vehicles you've researched, which one, if you could pick one, which one would you say is your favorite and why? I've got a stock answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> the current one is the most interesting. <laughs> and I, no, I mean, it really and truly is. You know, I mean, for example, my the latest Panzer tracks not yet published was on the twelve ton half track. So for the research on that would have gone on maybe trickle research going on for 20 years maybe and then intense research over maybe a four or five year period for example uh for that 12 ton i couldn't i couldn't think of coming out with a book on the 12 tonner without doing a uh, decent work on the armored one that's that, that they found in poland so i went to poland and got permission to measure it and so forth so that you know, that becomes your most interesting thing. You're going mad looking for information on that. And then, of course, you're madly looking for, because it's a vehicle, it has armor on it. Everybody just refers to it as, well, so they've got some name for it, but they, they don't know anything about it. So you want to, uh, if you're going to produce something like Panzerbergs, you need to be able to say, why was it produced? What was it for? Why is there apparently only one of them around? Was there more? and so forth. And that's that's what becomes the most uh, important thing. And then I suppose just up to today, I mean, the work that I do with the Wheel Foundation, I mean, that is the same sort of research, but it's even on a more tiny level because the discussions for the last couple of days have been about what are the fittings on which the gun shield on a 222 armoured car what are they? What do they? What makes them work? And how how do they change over time? And damn it, we've got a four series two two two, and we've managed to buy two original roller systems, but they're for a five series and they're different. Now, how, where can we find the roller system for the earlier models, and why do they change that? So that all becomes uh, very important. And funnily enough, I think modeling is going a little bit like that because the guys are paying so much more attention to the interior of the vehicle. I mean, I 30 years ago, I, I drew cross-sections of a couple of vehicles, but there was nobody really interested in showing what the inside of a vehicle looked like. So I stopped that because it was pretty time-consuming. Indeed, part of the problem was I couldn't display it in a, in a 3D format in those days. So you've got to I sliced through the middle of the vehicle, but that was about it. That kind of leads into my next question is, how do you think that scale modeling community has impacted the appetite for historical research? It's, it's, it's definitely um, proceeding very quickly. It's a very fast upwards curve because with the internet, 
there are different ways of exchanging information and there's uh, some very good guys have come along who are looking at the modeling side of things. There's forums for modelers that there wasn't before. There's forums for researchers that there wasn't before. And then above all else, again, it maybe goes back a bit to the question earlier on about when the Cold War ended. Gradually, the emergence of the Russians as an impact into this whole area is just huge because right from the point of view that there are more people interested in armor in Russia than anywhere else in the world, vastly outnumber anybody in the West. Secondly, because of all the big battles of the war, I mean, anything that happened in the West, frankly speaking, was a sideshow. But all those big battles on in, in the East, the debris that's lying around all over the place is just phenomenal. And they keep extracting this. I mean, there's obviously guys who have a full-time job digging this stuff up and fi- are finding it first and digging it up and putting it on the market as uh, damaged equipment, which the likes of the Wheel Foundation would be purchasing spare parts from these guys. But on the modeling side, then there's a whole this whole stream of people uh, who are working in great detail on, on their models and so forth. And then the latest thing I see is there's quite a lot of good young guys who are highly qualified in in the CAD and 3D modeling and printing, 3D printing and so forth. And I think they're making a huge impact on the on the hobby. So as a trustee of the Wield Foundation, you get to participate in some one-to-one scale modeling, helping to restore World War One or World War II vehicles. Can you talk about how your relationship with the foundation originally started? Well, the the founder of the Wheel Foundation is a guy called Mike Gibb. Mike started off in the 90s collecting vehicles from his own point of view. You know, I think the first thing he bought was a Jeep and then he bought a Schwimmwagen and gradually moved up the line. Early 2000 or so, he decided that uh, the correct thing to do was to establish a uh, foundation which is under the auspices of the British Charities Commission and he donated all his vehicles to that foundation and he also donated as some assets to the foundation that the foundation could use as um, income to keep it going. My my contact came in very early on in the 2000 because I I knew that they that Mike had collected certain vehicles and of course what I was always after is I want to measure I want to measure I want to measure component parts full vehicles where necessary but mostly to get original components that I could measure. I I contacted Mike and we met up and the rest is history once again. And indeed, Tom Yentz and myself were trustees of the charity. I'm still a trustee of the of the charity. The objective really is to build up the collection, but to build it up as a running collection with, as far as possible, 100% accuracy. So, you know, there's, there's various museums, national and private museums, where what they want to do is basically take a vehicle and knock it together and put in new pieces to make it look good and so forth. But the fa- the Wheel Foundation doesn't do that. It tries to build the vehicle back into a 100% accurate vehicle, which is very time-consuming, especially on research, and uh, very time-consuming and costly, obviously, in terms of finding these uh, components. Well, sometimes where necessary, manufacturing the components. But 
um, but the result is that the collection, which is now about 30 odd vehicles, is is 100% accurate or 99% accurate. And we have a we all we have a Department of Corrections where if somebody finds out that something is incorrect or we had to make a component ourselves rather than find an original, if we subsequently find an original component, we take the uh, the man-made one out and replace it with an original. So gradually making the collection more and more accurate. And the result is, I mean, we've got the Panther 411 that's fully running and so forth. We have two Sturmgeschütz uh, from MIAG, we have um, a whole range of different vehicles, and we try to pick vehicles that are historically quite rare. Obviously, there's 251, that's an, you know, and, and we try to find the vehicles that have provenance. So the 251 came with its original Vikinger markings on it, and we have passed on two of our 250s that we had restored because we didn't have any provenance for them. And we have two new, two uh, SDKFZ 250s, which are awaiting restoration, which have fantastic provenance, have their original markings, unit markings and so forth, and have some history behind each one of them. So that's the way the wheel is working all the time. And Mike is involved as well. He's a trustee, naturally enough. And he volunteers on a full-time basis to keep the the operation going. We have, let's see, we have about six staff in total, a couple of uh, part-time and uh, four full-time staff. And we have apprentices and so forth in the training program, bringing skills to a new generation. That's incredible. What a passion for accuracy. I mean, you know, as modelers, we we think that we're passionate, but to actually go to the length that you've got a vehicle restored and running, and if you find a more correct component, you'll actually go back and reinstall that component. That that's incredible. What what a what a what a tribute to. One to one, yeah. <laughs> The, the only problem is if it's something hidden down underneath the gearbox, you have to take the gun out and you have to take the gearbox out. So most of our listeners are familiar with the major museums out there, that, like Bovington, Kubinka, uh, Munster, Samar. Are there s- small, I mean, I know there is, but the smaller, maybe lesser well-known army museums that people could go visit or, or look into? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I suppose Fort Benning now and Bobbington, they benefit from the fact that the vehicles that are there have largely speaking, other than maybe damage that occurred when they were sitting in Aberdeen, these are original vehicles that haven't been meddled with. So for me, uh, and for anybody really interested in the details, these are fantastic vehicles. Some more somewhat the same but they have more restored vehicles and then you get in in now in australia rob loudon has the museum in cairns where they're trying to build up at very high speed uh quite a astounding collection you know they're trying to get the vehicle into its uh, external state they're not worrying about the internal details and so forth uh, smaller museums yes there's a lot of them around europe where you basically have to find them and then figure out what they've actually got because you know there might be one up in Ardennes where they'll have one particular vehicle of of interest somewhere else that's got three or four horse 
drawn wagons or something that are, are of great interest. And then, of course, in Kubinka, you have a, a tremendous collection of vehicles that nobody else has. Um, you know, like obviously the mouse is one, but it's a bare shell. But they have they have other vehicles that are very, very interesting and impressive. I mean, the, the Waffentrager with the Pac-43 on it is, that's certainly pretty original hasn't been damaged and meddled with i don't i don't know that there's many places where one can go and actually find these things where they're as near to 100 percent uh, accurate here in the states uh as I, we were actually talking with steve zaloga about this up until very recently it's been almost criminal that the united states has not been willing to preserve our armor whether it's captured or our own american armor and now they're finally starting to do that and so thank goodness for private collections and private collectors that have been willing to give some love to these armor pieces yeah, I mean, obviously, the likes of Jacques Littlefield uh, in his day was a fantastic boost to all this. And I mean, even he had a huge influence on what was happening in Fort Knox uh, in the Patton Museum. And uh, and the vehicles that he collected, he wasn't in the least bit interested in German equipment until very late on. But he managed to acquire some very nice pieces, which are in various locations like the Collings Foundation and so forth. But I, I mean, the work that Len Dyer and Rob Cogan are doing down in Fort Benning is fantastic there. You know, they're, they're taking the vehicles. They're, they're not meddling with them. They're, they're preserving them. And now they're in this magnificent building. There's nowhere else in the world where you could see a building with this number of vehicles in. So you're catching up. I got to go see the Little Phil collection in 2010, shortly before it was broken up. And, you know, seeing the level of passion they had applied to the restoration of the Panther and seeing their Panzer, you know, Panzer One and Panzer Four, it was, it was really inspiring. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and Jacques was uh, in common with myself and, say, Michael Gibb, you know, but were very interested in getting the uh, detail correct. And we spoke we swapped information and tried to make sure that things were being done as accurately as possible. So I have a question for you. I'm going back to uh, research for a minute. When you set out to begin yep. a new research project, how do you decide which subject? I mean, is that decided for you or do you just, you know, get some, you know, a bee in your bonnet? I mean, how, how do you decide what you're going to dive into? Yeah. Um, the, the answer is I only do nowadays research projects and publishing projects that are that i i think are of interest to people that have not been done to any extent before or where there's new information available why i say that is i mean that's basically where panzer tracks came from tom and myself and indeed well walter had a relatively free hand with motorbook for log but a lot of the publishers they want to impose a project on you and in when it comes to german vehicles there's only one project that's of interest to them and that's tiger if it's not tiger and they want to, uh, you know, tiger names of every guy that worked in a tiger, every type of tiger. Now, there's nothing wrong with tiger, and I was I have done books on it myself, several of them. But largely speaking, the basic history of the tigers was finished when Tom Yance, myself, and with the help of Walter, did the books for Schiffer Publishing. You know, and there has been little bits since then. I mean, the, the new information on Tiger is at a very detailed level, and it's guys like Dave Burden 
uh, with his Tiger Info website or the the guy uh, Schneider that does the Tiger history books about the units and so forth. That's new. But it's very hard to think of what you could do on the technical side that would be genuinely something uh, moving forward. So Tom and myself decided we would we would self-publish in effect, put through Panzer tracks, and then we could we could start at the beginning, so to speak, and work our way all through. So whether it was a Panzer One or a Tiger, it didn't matter. We would cover it as we worked our way through, and then we've included you know engineering vehicles, half tracks, all the various half tracks. That's been the driver to set down the basic information that other people can start off with when they go to do modeling or they're interested in the history of these things. And I mean, the most the most used books that I have are my poor old Panzer tracks. I wish I'd kept two copies of each <laughs> because these ones are getting <laughs> worn out because <laughs> I can't remember all the stuff we wrote and drew and so forth. I've got to refer to them all the time. Well, you should be able to have some pull with the publisher, right? Get some more. I know. I mean, the <laughs> publishers ourselves. Uh, when Tom, uh, when Tom uh, left, the, he was a nuclear physicist uh, working in the nuclear industry over there. When he left, he set up a publishing house. So it's actually with uh, it's through the family. It's published now. So you know, basically, I can choose any subject I want. So what would I? What would I do next? I. I I think about where is there brand new information that people don't understand, and uh, you know some of the some of the aspects of the vehicles um, we cover them in as much detail as was possible that people could stomach. Let's say back in two thousand, but people in two thousand and twenties they can take twice as much detail. Uh, and they're interested in so some of those subjects I could go back and say how about this this is this is stuff you didn't realize how important this was I mean the, the whole the whole supply chain of production is uh, very intricate when you look at German World War II vehicles there's a huge topic on that I don't know whether people can handle it just yet but uh, <laughs> yeah if you if you understand how they were putting these things together you'd suddenly understand why they're so so much details or so many changes and all the rest of it. Yeah, that's uh, German engineering coming into play, right? Yeah, but but everybody else does it nowadays, actually. You know, I mean, all, uh, it's all done in much the same way, uh, no matter where you go. I mean, the, okay, there was one thing that was different. I mean, in, in Germany, if they thought something had to be improved, they changed it. And to hell with the consequences. They hadn't, they hadn't got the uh, learning coming from Ford and so forth that you just keep on building them regardless. So they were, they were fiddling around changing minute details, which of course was a serious problem when they were in the field because guys couldn't get spare parts for, for the various things and stuff was out of action for longer than it needed to be for that reason because they had changed something and made it better. When you're researching a subject and you're missing a critical piece of information, how do you go about solving the puzzle of finding what you need? Um, well, the, the one thing about research, uh, in I think in any field, but uh, certainly in this field, is if you just looked over there and said, I want to research that, and you'd never done anything on this before, you're going to have a tremendous problem. So every day of the week, I collect information and Above all, I catalog it so that um, I can find find the information. So if somebody tomorrow said to me, 
could you do a book on stronger ships, for example? I would be starting from all of the books that I've published on it before, plus all of the research that I've collected over the years. And then it's just a matter of having, looking at my notes and, and files and saying, where do I need to go? How do I need to go and get more detailed information on each aspect of this? And then you go off down those avenues trying to make sure that you've covered this. So, for example, well, I think one of the last Ponzer tracks I did was on the Ponzer 4 H&J models. And the big, the big issue with the uh, J uh, was that they introduced these Drachsplechschürzen, which were the wire mesh schürzen. Until I found one of those to measure, you, I couldn't do a book on that subject because it'd be hopeless. You'd be trying to take judge it from photographs or something like that. And it wouldn't be accurate um, because you cannot scale from photographs, not accurately at any rate. So you need the original material. So luckily enough, I stumbled across a um, guy who had saved uh, some parts uh, from, a, from a building site in Germany. And he had sections of this uh, wire mesh shirtson. And I made a note of where, where it was. So I went back to him and said, can I come and measure those now? And he said, oh, I sold those to somebody else. So I had to then go and contact them and go and measure the shorts. But then once you once you measure something, then you can start building on it. And even if parts are missing and so forth, you can you can kind of work forward and then gradually accumulate enough information. So it's never a standing start. And if I told you I wanted to research a particular thing it would be a be a, and if i'd never done anything on it before it would be a long hard slog because you cannot go to an archive like like nara in washington and find exactly what you're looking for in the first day it takes weeks of getting to know where things might be and getting to know what the right questions might be to ask from the guys behind the counter and so forth and the same in in the german archives i mean you can't go and say can i have a handbook on a young panther no such thing exists or nothing has survived like that yeah that was going to kind of lead me to my next question which is you know in 2021 how is research really different than it would have been in say 1981 well i suppose the the big uh, thing is that it's it's possible to do it online much more than before and you can get a lot of the distance online now you can't get the full way during the pandemic where one wasn't able to travel and where I haven't been able to go to uh, museums and so forth. I've got a list as long as my arm of things that I have to do in archives, in museums, where are places where I know that there are components that are important that have to be measured. But it, there's an awful lot more that I can be doing in the meantime that's proving very valuable and that uh, will stand me uh, very well when I finally get to go and measure some of these things. Can we talk about like your involvement in Tiger 131? Well, I mean, that's that really is uh, very, well, relatively minor, I think. But that's a long time ago. I mean, in the 90s, I went to, uh, well, Bovington had started the procedure to restore that vehicle. And uh, a lot of things went wrong over, I don't know, 10 or 12 years that made it very slow to actually get done. But at the very beginning of the project, I went along and I fortunately recorded the color schemes because the guy who is uh, doing this 
restoration work, he had started to disassemble the vehicle. And in fairness, he was doing a very good job. But for example, we found when he split the the center wheels where the two are bang up together again, one another inside was original paint. Obviously, outside the museum and painted it ten times. This original paint was there, and it matched with the research that I had done with the ORIL, which is the standard authority in Germany. And I was able to match the color to the the ORIL number, and then go from my research on the orders when the paint cut. Uh, painting change and so forth I was able to identify that and then uh, also at that time they took the stowage bin off the back of the turret and again fortunately revealed uh, a patch of paint that hadn't been obliterated and luckily for us all this was a different colour and it was the other colour of the two colours it was more the honey honey coloured not the green the green was in the wheels so I recorded that for them, and then quite a long time later, uh, Tom and myself uh, went to the museum. And the fortunate thing about the Tiger 131 was this is a a vehicle that was kind of famous in its day. Uh, When it was captured in North Africa, two very big celebrities, as far as the, the Allies were concerned, went to have a look at it. One was the King, uh, King George VI of England and uh, Churchill both visited this machine so massive numbers of photographs were taken and Bovington has a a collection of original prints of these uh, photographs which are at a size you don't I don't ever see nowadays they you know they are the size of a computer screen they're huge so we went there went to Bovington Dave Fletcher in the library got out all these photographs for us and himself and Dave Willie the curator and the four of us worked on these photographs and I basically had a set of my drawings of Tiger uh, multiple copies of these printed on A3 pages anywhere where we could see the mark of the changing color on these black and whites because you can't see the color but wherever we could see a dividing line between one color and another we would record it on the drawings pencil it in and so forth so largely speaking we got about about 66 percent of the vehicle camouflage demarcation done on these that was handed over to the guys uh, and the museum then went off and painted it that those colors so but the surprising thing is the vehicle is of course 1940 well 42 43 it went into action in 43 so it shouldn't have been the colors that it is because those are north africa 1941 colors but it was and there is there was a, there is orders kicking around that says you uh, continue to paint the vehicle in the color you have you'd, until the new until those colors run out so the only thing we can think of is that Henschel still had supplies of this 1941 set available so that really was that was the background taking apart the road wheels and you know removing pieces and being able to actually see a color that normally you would say well that's probably not the color it is it's it's incre- it's incredible attention to detail well, what we do at the what we do at the wheels now is we do we have our own testing device 
for kind of first look at the thing. We find samples of the components we're working on that have the original paint on them. And then we pass those over or the guys from one of the universities in England who specialize on conservation. We hand it over to them and they do uh, spectroscope work and all the rest of it on these. And they'll give us a, they'll give us a layer by layer of the paint that's on, the, on it and help us to identify. And be, because one has to understand that the, the whole, what would I call it, the science of the paint is very complex altogether. And I mean, I, I, I visited the archives in uh, RIL in Germany on, I think, five or six different occasions and worked with the scientists over there because they were trying to understand because they were getting queries about the armored vehicle colors and so forth. So um, I spent a lot of time with them and Tom and myself would have liked to have produced a book on the subject. But we we found was that it was pretty well impossible to reproduce these darn colors in print. You could not control the printing to the extent that you needed to be able to say those are that is a book that has the colors in it. So the project is there somewhere in the background, but never moved forward. That's fascinating. At the Weald Foundation, um, are there a couple of the restorations that you've kind of had more of a hand in than than others or ones that you're more fond of than others? Well, I mean, the current project is uh, armored cars, four-wheeled armored cars. We have... In, in effect, you could say we're working on five of those armored cars at the same time, which is remarkable in itself. There's a, where a guy in Norway has, a, has one vehicle, and he's working on the project with us remotely. And we have three of our own cars, and then we're also restoring Kevin Wheatcroft's four-wheeled armored car. So Kevin has a two, uh, SDKFZ223 radio car. The Wheel Foundation has a radio car, 223. Our one is a 1939 one, which is fantastic because it's it's actually going to be in the colors and so forth that are used at the beginning of France. So it'll be, when it's finally restored, it will be in the dark gray and the dark brown. It has the, the magazines uh, for the machine guns before they came out with the Gurtzaka with the belts in them. It has the, those and has a whole lot of other things that are pretty rare. Kevin's one is a little bit later. It's about a nine, it's a 1941. And then we have a four series 222 armored car from 1941. That'll be just plain grey because that's the colour scheme they had in those days. And it has a KWK 38, which is completely live firing and so forth is possible. This vehicle, provided nothing too disastrous goes wrong between now and middle of summer next year, will be launched in June next year as a running vehicle. That, I think, will be the first time that a four-wheeled armoured car in running condition uh, as it originally was. Now, Jacques has a, had a running car. That's in Collings, but, but that's a Ausfrom B, a later one. And then we in the foundation have the third vehicle is a 261, which is a radio vehicle. It doesn't have any turrets or anything. It's just for radios because the four-wheeled armoured cars were, were, shall we say, losing their value at that stage. Uh, they were wanting to move more to tracked or semi-tracked vehicles. So the 261, and that's what the guy in Norway has as well. So we've five of these vehicles going full blast at any one stage. And 
I can tell you every one of those might as well be a different vehicle. There's so many things of different on them. It's just amazing. You know, when you get down to uh, the 1939, the whole, all the wiring and everything is uh, the suppression for the radios is different to what happened in the 1940. The radios are different. It's on it goes. Everything is different. Not early, late and mid, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's complete bullshit. <laughs> yeah, these are, it's a 1939, our first uh, 223 is a 1939 3 Series. All right, the, the second one's a 223, 1940, no, 4 Series. And then the armored car is a 1941 4 Series, and the 261s are 5 Series. So all the way through, they change. Were these built by different manufacturing firms or were they all the same manufacturer? The chassis are all coming from the company Horsch. That's Audi. I mean, they, the same logo that you get on your our Audi if you drove one of those things. So the chassis are built by Audi. And then basically they get an order from the Waffenamt saying ship 20 chassis to Busing Anagi or Shikau and they'll put the 222 body on it. The uh, radio vehicles, they get shipped to MNH or later on they get shipped to Weserhute to be assembled. And then the armor is coming from, originally is coming from DW in Hanover. They decide that DW should be doing more important things like making Sturmschutz. So they, uh, the armor is being made in Austria by uh, Buhler and so on. Each one is different and the, the assembler is different. I, I did have a question. Um, on Tiger 131, the Bovington crew seemed to go to great lengths to preserve the original battle damage and not repair it. Um, so that you have, you know, the historical record of that. Does the Wield Foundation do that as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. Gosh, I mean, it's fantastic if you have uh, the provenance of, of battle damage there. Yes, and we have that. We battle damage on various different vehicles. Um, okay, one of our Sturmschutz is one of the ones that came out of the Black Sea. It was on, it never actually saw combat, but it was going to the uh, 210th that were in the Crimea. And uh, the freighter that was bringing it was called the Santa Fe. It was torpedoed by a Russian submarine. So it sank. Now, the initial, if that, if that had been that, these probably would have been salvaged much earlier. But a few days later, the uh, Germans were chasing, I don't know whether it was that submarine, but they were chasing a Russian submarine and they uh, depth charged what they thought was the submarine, which was the wreck of the Santa Fe. And the Santa Fe, the, there was whatever it was, 10, 10 Sturmgeschutz on board, but there was 5,000 tons of ammo and it exploded when they depth charged it. So the subchaser was vaporized and much more damage was caused. So, but now that I think there's a total of, um, there's a total of four Sturmgeschutz have been recovered from the Santa Fe. And okay, they're in one worse condition than the other. I mean, our one was just terrible, you know, when it when it was pulled up. But the Black Sea is an unusual environment. When you go below a certain level, it's very um, oxygen uh, short in the water. It's not salt water. So it's remarkably preserved in other ways. But uh, the gearbox, for example, in, in it, when it was recovered, the gearbox was the casing is alloy. So the with all the different metals, it had acted like a battery and the alloys, alloys effectively melted 
So what we recovered from the bottom of the hull of the Sturmgeschütz was a whole lot of gears encased in molten, what looked like molten alloy. Wow. So the whole gearbox had to be replaced. and uh, so, But the gears were in perfect condition. They were, they were good to go. And then, obviously, it depends on other vehicles. I mean, the Jagdpanther that uh, that was used on the ranges in Britain. It was a it was a Jagdpanther that was in combat in in forty five against the British forces. Obviously, captured and somewhere along the line was brought back to Britain and uh, used as a range target. It's nothing to do now with the so called post war ones that were assemb- final assembly by the British. It's uh, it's an earlier vehicle. But that was blown uh, blown to all hell by uh, you know heat runs and so forth uh, stuff that the young panthers weren't designed to keep out <laughs> went through it. Wow, that's that's incredible. And then you've got to go back and piece it back together and undo all that damage. Yeah. Well, we have a we have a second uh, Panther. It's uh, like a modeler would have the we have the box of parts. We have the parts for the second one, and it's um, it's about. 80% complete. It's amazing all the parts we've got, but it's a big job to put it all back together again because it's, you know, we've got all the front end of it and then we separate sides and the rear deck and an engine for it, a, a Maybach engine and so forth. I mean, that's another thing. We we, we only use the, the original engines. Okay, not the, the original engine, but we use a, 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 a Maybach HL230 in our Jagdpanther or a HL120 in the Stungerschutz. A lot of vehicles that you see running around have diesel engines in them and whatever is available, modern stuff. After uh, this lovely pandemic, uh, what's uh, what's next for Hillary? What uh, projects or passions do you have uh, in the next uh, couple years you want to tackle? Yeah, well, I, I definitely, I mean, I definitely want to get out there and get to my research in the archives in Germany again. Um, there's a lot of such stuff that needs to be checked out. Strangely enough, because the Wheel Foundation has one of these vehicles, we have uh, a magnificent Panjé wagon, which is a horse-drawn cart with its original markings, original colors. The only problem with it is that the spine is cracked on it, but uh, we will replace that one of these days. I have uh, I've already done a huge amount of research on the production of these things. I mean, I never thought I'd see the day when I'd be researching horse wagons, but it's so important in the scale of things. And nobody has ever sat down and uh, put the, the history of how these were produced and the enormous quantities that they were produced in. I mean, I have I have all the production records for all of the Ukraine, for the northern Baltic states. There was factories all over these places turning out these things in thousands. They were using them all over the East Front. And the Panje wagon is a horse carriage that's of a smaller dimensions to the German official horse-drawn wagons and were better suited to the type of horses you could get in the East. Interesting. I, <laughs> you just don't really think of why Why would they make the wagon smaller? Well, they had different horses. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, actually, the Panjé horse is a uh, breed of horse that's able to survive in the in the steppes and the cold and all the rest of it. Whereas the, um, the Germans had a magnificently designed uh, horse-drawn wagon called the HF7, which had 
tires and suspension and the steel body and so forth. But it required proper uh, big Western horses or the horses we'd have in the States pull it. But those guys couldn't survive the cold and the bad conditions in the East. And these wagons were too heavy for them to pull in where there was no roads. So the horses were casualties for just from pulling the vehicle. There's lots of interesting things that we haven't got to yet. <laughs> but I don't know whether or never Panzer tracks might be stretching it a bit much if I get to get onto wooden wagons. You'd have to maybe give it another name, you know, something to do. With- yeah, yeah. Well, funny enough, I bumped into this whole business of wooden stuff in the half-track stories because the uh, the eight-ton half-tracks, the 12-ton half-tracks, all of these all went over to wooden bodies. I mean, there was thousands and thousands of these wooden bodies built towards the latter from 43 onwards. We don't see many of them because obviously if the vehicle goes on fire, everything is gone. If it's left lying around, the farmers grab it and build sheds out of them. And uh, they, they just have disappeared to a large extent. Absolutely. I always thought it would be great to have a little uh, Kettencrad, you know, if you found one of those laying oh, yeah. around, grab that and throw it on the farm. <laughs> that, that's one of, the, one of the fantastic vehicles to drive. There's no doubt about it. It's wonderful. Well, Hillary, this has been fantastic. So much fun. Thank you for taking the time to to speak with us. I know it's been a thrill for me and appreciate your time and, and your generosity. Good. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to do it because I want more people to be interested in the stuff that kept me interested all those years. Uh, and uh, this is one way of uh, passing on some of that enthusiasm, I hope, to, to others and make them look at other things and to enjoy the modeling that they're doing and so forth even more than they do at the moment. Well, just really appreciate your passion and your incredible attention to detail. And uh, hopefully after the pandemic, I I would love the opportunity sometime at a show to shake your hand someday. We'd be delighted to have you as members in the Wheel Foundation. And uh, we'd love to have people come to the the open days. We we do them once or twice a year uh, when we can. And, uh, you know, in the past, we've had where we've driven the Jagdpanzer around and the Sturmgeschütz around and so forth. And as I say, next year, with uh, a bit of luck, if no more close downs and lockdowns, we'll be able to run the first of these four-wheeled armoured cars. But I should maybe say that after the German armoured cars, the next project is South African armoured cars because our next theme, well, we've done the French World War One stuff. We've got the two uh, FT-70, the FT and the TSF. And we just recently managed to get a tank transporter trailer from 1918 for the uh, FT. So that has to some minor details on that. That's not a big restoration project, but... We're trying to find vehicles that are being ignored by history or by the people that benefit from them. So, I mean, the South Africans built four or 5,000 of these armoured cars. They were the only armoured cars that the, the British forces, Allied forces, had. The Also known as the Marmon Harrington, but the South African reconnaissance car. And then we have a Indian pattern carrier manufactured in New Zealand, and we have uh, an Australian patterned, well, let's say Brengon carrier, but it's an Australian patterned carrier. These are all vehicles that were produced in huge numbers, and nobody ever mentions the contribution of these guys to the war effort. Wow, look forward to see see how those look. That's amazing. That's fantastic. (laughs) 
Well, um, we will uh, include links, uh, Hillary, to the Wield Foundation on this episode so that our listeners can check out the important work that's being done over there. Best of luck with uh, future Panzer tracks and your other books that you have in the future. And uh, just thanks again so much. Great. Thank you. Okay, guys. I don't know about you guys, but I thought that was a fantastic interview. Hillary is an absolute professional and his in-depth knowledge in German armor is, well, I don't think anyone knows more than he does. He's a joy. He truly is. Yeah. I'm super jealous I didn't go to that interview because I wanted to ask him the question that you know keeps me up at night is, did the Yag Tiger ever have an 88 millimeter barrel? That 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 is a question that resides in some myth and folklore with Sasquatch. So... <laughs> I think it has the validity of Sasquatch, but I, I would have loved to have uh, asked that question to him. I thought about it after after I had listened to the interview, and damn, it, it, was, it was really cool hearing about him, his history, how he got involved, his work with Tiger 131, his personal relationship with Walter Spielberger. I mean, the man is a walking history book, and it was certainly a joy to listen to it. Maybe we'll get him on at a later date, and I can join him then, because it, it was certainly valuable, and, and I hope our listeners loved it as well. Yeah, his his passion for research and the Wield Foundation where he works, you know, their passion for restoring military vehicles in the way that absolutely preserves the most historical accuracy is just it's just fascinating. So yeah, what a what an honor to talk to Hillary. It was a it was a great experience for sure. All right. Well, well, guys, that'll do it for this Triple P episode and for all of 2021. Thanks again to all of you for listening and making season two of the Triple P a great success. We've had a lot of fun doing this and we've got some great plans for 2022. We want to thank our awesome sponsors, Tankcraft and Sean's Custom Model Tools, as well as Value Gear for their contributions to the podcast and to all the individual members of the posse who have contributed. Thank you so much. Thanks again to our great friend, JC, for joining us for this episode. Thanks a lot, JC. You're welcome. Glad glad to be here. We hope everybody out there has a happy holiday season. We look forward to talking to you again in two weeks. Don't forget our Plastic Posse podcast giveaway. Make sure to send those entries in before the end of the year. And episode 37 will feature another awesome interview and more talk about the hobby that we all love so much, plastic modeling. So until then, live well, be safe, happy holidays, and most of all, build some models. Ho, ho, ho. Beautiful. (laughs) Outstanding, Scotty Santa Claus. What, how do you say when you stand in a line again? You cue. Oh, yeah, you cue. Yeah. 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 What What do you call the back of a car where you put stuff in? That's a boot. Yeah. Yeah. Boot. <laughs> nice.
<laughs> oh, I, I what could do, get into what this. What do you call that? That box thing you get in that takes you up floors in a building? Uh, lift. Although <laughs> a lot of people tell me off because I call it an elevator. Where, where then you, you go got to it right sometimes. Uh, I go to the bathroom in the bathroom. <laughs> what about the loo? <laughs> no, no, that's no. Does say loo? Okay. Going to, going to loo? Nah. Not a cool thing to say. Uh, I don't say it. Everyone else in my family says it. I don't say it. If you say that, at, if you talk, if you say anything in English at a bar in America, you will have you, chick magnet. You will have to beat them away. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's, it's weird because over here, my accent is known. It's very common. It's like a proper commoner's accent. I well, think. over here, you're high society. They think you're on the <laughs> crown for crying out loud. <laughs> like Downton Abbey? Where? What? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've, just, I've been there plenty of times. I go there on a weekend. Just just say your uncle's a lord and, you know, you, you live in an <laughs> he, abbey and you... No, you know, he did just, go to Oxford and is an archaeologist. It, <laughs> dude, you, you're going to have to beat the women away when you're in Denver. <laughs> Make a change. Make a change.